Giant Robot FM, your home of all things Mecca, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. As per usual, we are covering MS Igloo, episode two. Last time we recorded, I got the episode number wrong, so I, I'm making sure I don't make that mistake again. PMC, my friend, how are you? I am doing well. I am, uh, you know, I'm I'm enjoying our our current moment of... I guess uh, I guess a technology cannons. I feel like there's a lot happening right now on our podcast between between Moonrace Wireless and our MS Igloo coverage. Uh, many many weapons are being fired. Many weapons are being unearthed. Yeah, when we record, like um, if I don't have like three days in between records, I feel like I'm recording nonstop. Like I feel like I just sat down and had a conversation with you. Not that that's a problem, mind you. I shit you not. I just watched Polar Express unintentionally. Um, what, what is that? Record. How can you watch something unintentionally? Uh, well, unexpectedly. Okay. I, I did not intentionally put it on. My my daughter wanted to watch a Christmas movie. Okay. Your daughter wanted to watch a Christmas movie on November 8th. Yeah. And what, nah, she's one Santa, of those. Santa, <laughs> well, my, my wife certainly is one of those. But she, we're being inundated with Santa media. Santa propaganda, if you will. On November 8th? Yeah. Have you have you been? No, you haven't. No, but like if you if you've been outside or listening to the radio, I have been outside. I only oh, listen yeah, to classical no, November first. It was Santa music from from as soon as I turned my car on, I was horrified. Yeah, and we we um, this is not going to surprise listeners of the podcast, but I brought my family to my dead mall to bring young kids to the mall is great because it's just open space especially when all the old people are there like at 9am um, I don't need to corral them they will go on like the little like arcade cars but they don't have, I don't even put money in they'll just have a blast for like 50 minutes just pretending they're driving a hot dog truck so that was my that was my last weekend but anyway the mall is decked out in uh, Christmas finery um, because of course the mall Santa is uh, ready and uh, ready to take <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure they got they got plenty of space for them there. Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, know, there's not not a not a problem fitting them in that establishment at this time. Don't don't sully my dead mall, my friend. Well, I'm going to see. I'm probably going to see Godzilla okay. minus one. There. The theater is good. The theater is good. It's not the deadest mall around. I've ne- I have now recently been to the even deader mall. Uh, but we can- this is not a this is not a South Jersey malls podcast, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, I have a follow-up question on that because I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. That's barely a mall anymore. It's just yeah, a Bath and yeah. Body's work. Yeah, Bath yeah, and Body yeah. And it's it's it was um, they were doing like a fundraiser there, and I walked through yeah. and I was like, "Holy crap!" <laughs> but uh, but yes, no, we are speaking of. Well, okay, you know what else is is dead? Uh, tanks in the One Year War. Ooh. All right, that was a good that was a good burn. But now I'm going to transition from that burn to our valued and respected guest. David Bednar. David, welcome back to the podcast. It's just telling you it's been too long since last we talked. Hello. Yeah, it's really it's really nice seeing you guys again. Uh, I can't wait to talk about this fascinating, frustrating, uh, uh, delightful uh, uh, OVA. You know, actually, I suppose this is contributing to the uh, uh, to the, oncrete, uh, the encroaching of Christmas 
into the uh, November season as you are going straight into the igloos. Uh, you could you could have been covering uh, Hathaway's Flash. Uh, uh, that's got high pumpkin content, but no, 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 no. You had to go igloos. I haven't seen Hathaway's Flash yet, but every I see every time I see Pumpkin Man, I just make the the bebop connection. Yeah. Japan has an understanding of jack-o'-lanterns that is confusing, but very stylish. Talk about good Christmas films. We need more solid Halloween flicks. A Knock in a Heaven's Door is a good one, even though it's like it runs a half an hour too long. There is uh, the new Gundam manga, uh, Werewolves, wear spelled like uh, putting on clothes. Uh, so uh, uh, we're getting that. We did just come out of Witch from Mercury, too. So I mean, the Gundams had its spooky season. That's yeah, a good point. We did get we did get like the ultimate broomstick mecca, the Calabarn. True. My uh, my I need I need fake ass names for my kids. Um, but toddler hero went as Kiki for Chris uh, for Halloween, and uh, I kept thinking about the Calabarn. But she bounced off Witch for Mercury. She did not. She does not appreciate Gundam like I do. She just likes the turn A Gundam opening. It's pretty good. Does she like uh, uh, when the man with the uh, the flat affect goes, turn a Gundam? Yeah, no, she says Gundam with it. I've been trying to get it on video, but I haven't like timed it perfectly yet. I love it's, that it's, so much that I, I have now made it my Twitch streams raid alert. So every time someone mm-hmm. raids my stream, that man just announces, turn a Gundam. Do people get the reference? Like, Do uh, your like, cr- crime sickos get the reference? I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, they know it's Gundam because it says Gundam. Like they know that, yeah. but like I don't think they understand like the mystery and allure of this man's accent and like that no one knows who said it. What's your favorite Gundam soundbite? I'll give you mine. Have- it's um, the PS One game uh, Gundam Battle Assault uh, because whenever you would start the game, it would go Gundam. That's that's a good one. I have like. A cursory knowledge of that game really through cultural osmosis there were excellent fighting games uh they actually uh the method of sprite animation where it was uh kind of more like a modern spine system where instead of being uh individual uh drawings in a sprite sheet they were uh pieces that are assembled on a a, a rigged skeleton um uh it, it actually wound up meaning that it had fairly high resolution artwork and especially on, like, uh, the PS2 had this upscaling t- uh, uh, software built into it that could up-res uh, uh, some graphics. It looked great on uh, uh, on a PS2 because uh, it just kind of, you know, smoothed all the edges, made it look, look hand-drawn. And then they used that technology so that you could knock armor pieces off of uh, uh, the robots as you were fighting. So you could get, you know, rip the chest off of a mm-hmm. Zaku and have, like, the sparks coming out. It was really, really good. That was uh, my first... Uh, the reason why Rose Gundam is my favorite Gundam is because of that game. Uh-huh. Uh, Rose uh, had all these really cool uh, funnel techniques with her uh, uh, with its um, you know Rose bits, and uh, I, I could uh, never beat any anybody with uh, uh, anything but Rose. And uh, so I was like, well, this is my guy. PMC, we should really stream that game one day. Yeah, the Battle Assault games have definitely... I, I think they're just, like, visually interesting. The, like, the production story of them is kind of interesting because, you know, the, the Japanese versions of those games are, like, the Battlemaster with original characters instead of... Those original characters are wild! Yeah, the original I characters are all them. wild. Yeah, they have cool art and, like, cool, like, little... You know, like, all fighting games had, like, kind of fun... Like, wild backstories for the characters, and so they're they're yeah. no different. The big beefy nuke farmer that owns the GPO2A? 
many many it's questions. Good stuff. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is interesting. And you know, so you have those two, and they become you know the the battle assault, and then you have some of like the weird ones later when they they do like what was like Gundam Gundam battle assault featuring Gundam Seed. <laughs> you know, it goes it goes places. The answer to the Gundam soundbite question, it's definitely the one sun, sunrise uh, robot noise. It's like where it like winds up. It gets used all the time as like an inappropriate loading screen noise in Journey to Jaburo. It's like wah, 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 wah. And it's like, oh my God, why are you playing this over and over? And it's just, I don't know. It's kind of fu- not. Now I recognize it all the time. If I can just pull a, a snippet of audio from a dub and that be a soundbite, it would be Hero yelling Sylvia Noventa with the car yeah. screeching. <laughs> that is pretty good. Sylvia Noventa! Oh. Skrr. Number two is uh, that guy that gets thrown out of the, the plane by Lady Un Set and them. then shot. Yes. Uh, where he goes, what? Yeah. No! Uh, just burned into my head for the all The General time. Septim dub is incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been so long since I watched Gundam Wing yeah. dubbed. I actually tried to throw on en- Endless Waltz the other day, but the- it was uh, undubbed on Crunchyroll. I was like, no thank you. <laughs> no no shade to those voice actors whom are- who are all excellent, but I was really in the mood for a good cheesy uh, early 2000s dub. Endless Waltz, another Christmas movie. You're slipping, man. You're slipping. I wrote a whole article about that for Anime News Network, uh, extolling the virtues of Endless Waltz as a premier Christmas film. I'll stand by that movie. Like, legitimately, I think it's a, fi- it's a fine film in its own right. Gundam Wing, yeah. Gun- Endless Waltz, that's where it's at. Only in Endless Waltz do they have the courage to try to shoot the Gundams into the sun. <laughs> <laughs> All right, David, I need some takes from you. Um, I need some Godzilla takes, particularly about Invasion of Astro Monster. I know you have some thoughts, and I uh, want to respond to a previous guest. All right, all right, all right. So in, uh, last, uh, uh, in the... In- uh, previously, you know, <coughs> hang on, sorry, uh, I'm about to expel horrible amounts of fluid from my body. Listeners, we're all sick here. David has a cough. I have a cough. I think PMC is the healthiest one out of all of us. All right. Previously on Giant Robot FM, MS Igloo, uh, Andy spouted some crazy nonsense. Oh yeah, that's actually gonna blast out. Uh, Andy spouted some crazy nonsense. About Invasion of Astromod. And I need to stand up for this, the finest of the Showa Godzilla films. Uh, of course, you know, asterisk caveat after after the original 1954 Gojira, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Here's the thing. Okay, so in his in his attack, his savage uh, uh, attack on this film, uh, he mentioned that it was boring and sl- uh, I believe he called it slow. And he said that there was not enough Godzilla in it. Buddy... That's Godzilla movies. I don't know if you've seen a Godzilla movie, but Godzilla is very rarely a part of the action inside of a Godzilla movie. There's a lot of talking with people in it, because people talking is cheap and easy. And Invasion of Astro Monsters is the one Godzilla movie that solves the problem of these people are boring. In this movie, the people are really interesting. It's cool. They have they they do like space spy things. There's the Keylax with their uh, no no that's no this is uh uh, uh the the Exians. Uh, there, there's the people from Planet X with the with their uh perfect uh, uh Devo uh uh outfits. 
have you seen you you well you haven't seen um it's next it's legitimately next up on my list um i watched godzilla yeah. 2000 last week as i talked about on the podcast it was kind of like lukewarm on it like andy was um the aliens subplot was a little cheesy showing godzilla at the beginning of the film doesn't lead to that satisfying build-up and i had one more complaint oh it's too self-serious otherwise a yeah. fine film uh, did you watch it dubbed or subbed subbed i kind of wish it was dubbed for the uh, cheese factor yeah okay so at least that self-serious part uh goes away with the dub uh which contains the memorable line these missiles will go through godzilla like crap through a goose Ooh, um that is a good line <laughs> yeah uh I, I godzilla 2000 has its issues it's definitely i like how scrappy it is it's trying to be a godzilla movie in the way that the 1998 uh, uh godzilla movie simply wasn't um, I like that there's an uh, uh, that there's a UFO alien. I like that it tries to eat Godzilla. Um, and I, I, I uh, the Millennium Goji outfit is not the best, but it's such a little kitty cat that I can't hate it. Uh, there's just something really smooshy about its its little Muppet face. Uh, anyway, Invasion of Astro Monster. Like, here's the thing: is that you've got uh, uh, Nick Park, you've got. Uh, you got uh, uh, an alien plot to conquer the Earth. Um, it's just, I don't know, everything just snaps. It, it clicks into place. And so when you're watching, you're like, my God, this is a really good science fiction movie. And then suddenly Godzilla shows up and starts ramb- uh, terrassing around. You're like, hey, this, this was this was peanut butter before, but now they covered it with chocolate. So, <laughs> mm, no, uh, Astro Monster, it's great. It has, uh, again, what? I'm a dub guy. I just have to. I, I am a dub guy. I can't help it. Uh, but this ha- uh, invasion of Astro Monster. Uh, spoilers. Uh, it turns out that the aliens have a uh, uh, an aversion to loud sounds, and invasion of Astro Monster has this uh, uh, has to stop the aliens. They figure out how to make this very loud sound, kind of like the thing that makes teenagers stop going into stores. Um, but they figure out like, okay, we play this one tone. And so they're going to broadcast it on the radio and it's like, uh, 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 hang on. I'm going to, I need to Google the, the specific text, uh, invasion of Astro monster turn love, up radio targeted anti-teenager technology. It's always very good. It's like we painted the building pink and they all left. <laughs> uh, noise quote. Ah, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it's basically like the perfect. Uh, uh, I don't understand why every rap album didn't start with this quote because it's this guy going, "Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to hear an unpleasant noise. This is intentional. Please turn your volume up as loud as you can." And it's like, yeah, all right. And then we're gonna get into some sick fucking beats. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. It's it's good stuff, man. You're gonna have a ball. It's easily my favorite of the show of Godzilla's um and yeah nah it's great maybe I should be watching some of the dubbed versions and the American versions because I am going through the Criterion set the cri- Criterion includes all the western versions of these Godzilla flicks but I've been watching just the original Japanese version and haven't been jumping back and forth I plan to for the Mystery Science Theater um the two Mystery Science Theater Godzilla movies to watch those episodes too along with it just for some good chuckles let me let me let me throw it to you like this: Invasion of Astro Monsters has a American actor as one of the co leads, mm. as a bid to uh, appeal to an international audience. Mm. So I think that it is not 
in a way that other dubs sometimes do get away from like the core uh, uh, intent of the film. I think that Toho was thinking about you, the American viewer, when they ca- uh, 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 when they cast Nick Park as Glenn, and it, it you know hits his voice talking out of his mouth in the dub. So I think that that's it gives it an air of legitimacy that uh, that the uh, uh, that the subs might. Or that, that that otherwise dubs don't quite have. I don't know. I I will. I here's the. I saw in the notes for uh, Igloo that this got a dub, and my copy, uh, my legitimate copy, uh, did not have a dub, and I was so upset because I was like, I want the garbage crap that was coming out of these people's mouths, especially given how we we will get into this. Uh, but especially for how tight the lip sync is uh, 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 constrained to the Japanese language, I have to see that 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 mess. Uh, and I'm heartbroken that I didn't. Uh, I don't. Just, I, I don't real quick. I, uh, oh yeah, uh, Steven, what got you? What got? So was it just getting the the Godzilla uh, uh, Criterion Collection that that got you on this uh, monster spree? Good question. I mean, I've had the show a box set since like seven Barnes and Noble sales ago, and I'm just now pulling the trigger. I think I rewatch. Oh, okay. I rewatch. It was uh, Shinji Higuchi because I was doing deep in the Gunbuster history. I did a rewatch of Shin Godzilla. I got the itch, and at that point, I was like, "I'm going to do this very slowly over time." So you watched Shin Godzilla? Did you go back and watch his Gamera's? No, that's on my list though. I want that okay. Gamera box set because it, it's gonna. It looks like similar aesthetically to the Godzilla box set. That's why I'm kind of pissed because. Once I finish the Showa era, I'm like, I would prefer to do this on physical media. I want the Heisei era. Criterion, I know the rights are a mess. I'm sure they're trying, and then, but they're not going to be successful in that regard. The uh, uh, get your yeah, absolutely get your hands on the Arrow uh, Gamera set because uh, like the treatment of the video, like I wouldn't even say say it's uh, uh, Criterion quality. I would say that it's obsessive uh, discotheque quality. Oh, nice. Like, you know, there is a bespoke new master of the video that is better than anything that has ever been seen before on these films. There's all sorts of uh, uh, original uh, uh, extras uh, specifically for that release. Uh, I know they've got a commentary by, uh, I think, Matt Frank, the uh, uh, American uh, monster artist. Uh, mm. There's a lot of really good stuff in that release. It's it's a, it's a top-tier uh, uh production and those films especially the heisei uh gamera movies are exquisite they are the best giant monster movies um if you uh there is there is a continuity sometime uh, as you progress through through the annals of history uh when you start getting into the, that 90s era stuff mm. one y'all absolutely need to cover gunhead uh yes uh, yes <laughs> a true, a true work of giant, a uh, 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 giant robot, uh, 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 wondery. Uh, but also, there is this weird uh, uh, through line from Godzilla versus Biolanti to the Zayram films to the Gamera movies of like here are the best people, and they all just kind of wind up following each other from project to project, and it's really good to uh, to track them through. And I can, I can take you on a ride. I can, I can guide you through this magical land of uh, tokusatsu. I'm looking forward to getting there in the year 2028 at the rate I'm going. <laughs> I'll be feasting, uh, I think all Godzilla fa- fans will be feasting this month and next month because I will be seeing Minus One in theaters. I told my wife, all right, 
it's very difficult for me to get out to the theater, but there's three movies I want to watch before in theaters before the end of 2023. Um, Big Master Commander fan. I need to see Napoleon in theaters. I love my expensive Ridley Scott historical epics. I got to see Godzilla, of course, and Boy in the Heron. I'm legally obligated to watch in theaters. So those are the three. All right. So Miyazaki, natural transition to MS Igloo. David, what's your history with MS Igloo? <laughs> I believe uh, when Miyazaki uh, saw MS Igloo, he said, this is an abomination. Yeah, anime was a mistake. It wasn't those. It wasn't those like undulating zombies. It was MS Igloo. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, real quick, my history with MS Igloo. Uh, I found out about it back in my uh, disgusting uh, 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 crusty M days. Uh, uh, the uh, the four chan board M. Uh, I'll you know one can argue it had a good period. It didn't, but one can argue it. Uh, but anyway, there was a lot uh, uh, as I was getting more and more into giant robots. Uh, something it was just really exciting to see these weird posts of uh, what looked like uh, video game cutscenes, and I was like, "Oh wow, what video game is that?" And it turned out that it was a uh, uh, this short of OVA uh, called MS Igloo, and then uh, it just took. A, I don't know. It's. To say I have a history with MS Igloo is to oversell both watching MS Igloo and MS Igloo itself. Uh, but I do think uh, what I love about uh, Igloo, what I love about Igloo is, uh, so like Igloo is the first time you ever get a, get a view of the Battle of Loom, right? Like that, uh, 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 it's this project that's just, total fan service but in a very interesting way where it kind of also is denying you the joy like like denying you what you want as a fan or uh, uh to put it another way like it's fan service without the glory it's fan service without saying look you know this is cool uh so like in the battle of loom it's uh, it's amazing seeing char show up just go through uh, 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 carrier after carrier after carrier. You you watch that and you go, my god! Of course they had to go with mobile suits. You know, it's it's, it's a battlefield changing technology. But I love that our heroes are over on the sidelines, not contributing one one iota to the overall battle. You know, they have this this big cannon. It's a cool cannon, but does it? I does it even ever hit? A ship? I don't. I don't. Yeah, it, it hits one ship, but it's a ship that's damaged and like by circumstances drifting over, you know, towards the forgotten corner where they're laying. Yeah, like, it's it's you know it's an already wounded ship that's probably going down anyway. And that's I think that's what I really love about Igloo and why you know when I, when you brought up Igloo, I was like, my hey, I love that show. Is it's not necessarily that it's uh you know a personal passion for me, but I think that the ways that it explores the one year war is, uh, uh, and mil- and warfare uh, uh, nothing else really deals with the fut- with futility in that way. Um, uh, 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 it also it kind of reminds me of the uh, there was uh, this this book I think I mentioned it the the last time but there's this this book of fake photojournalism from the one year war. It's called like MS era double O. 79 to 0080 or something like that. Um, and it's these really awesome drawings of, you know, behind the scenes in the in the war. And so you have 
you know, sometimes it's like, here's a kid picking up a bullet shell, or here's a Federation pilot putting on her lipstick. Uh, uh, it, there's little uh, Easter eggs for, especially 0080. Uh, like, you can kind of see the uh, the Xeon spy team in a couple of shots, uh, and, and you can track them through. But what I, uh, there's a there's a clip from it that I uh, put in the notes uh, where it's uh, plate 68 and it goes, the secret weapon. During the latter days of the war, Zion forces, uh, this is back in the days where it was Zion, not Zion. Zion forces completed many new MSs, but almost all of them were incomplete prototypes. I love that it's the footnote. I love that we're talking mm. about these, these, these little footnotes. Um, I remember uh, when I was a kid, I would read, uh, I found out that like, Oh, the first jet fighter was completed and fielded during World War II. And I was like, oh, wow, that must have changed everything. No, it came up. It came so late and it was so and it was such a twitchy mess of technology. Of course, it didn't contribute anything to uh, 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 to the fight. Um, I love like that's uh, we'll get in, especially in this episode. This episode is absolutely thematically about. Uh, <laughs> what happens when you are not going to, you know, you're not even winning the war. You're not even a part of the war. But uh, I think that that's something that really, really draws me to this, uh, to the show that it says in war, there are, you know, it's not just that there's winners and losers, but there's, there, it's so big. There are people who will just have entire life experiences and never contribute to anything uh, as a part of it. And they, that's just how things go too. Um, so I think that's, I also like, I'm a big animation guy. You know, I, I'm a, <laughs> I've got a degree in animation. Um, and there is something about the gonzo uh, uh, 3D animation in this show. That's really, again, like I said, it looks like a PS2 cutscene. The thing is that in 2004, like this is when uh, uh, Snake Eater comes out, Metal Gear Solid 3. You look at Metal Gear Solid 3 cutscenes, they look far superior to anything in MS Igloo. Not, you know, maybe like the actual uh, texture size or the uh, uh, the models might be higher quality in Igloo, but the <laughs> in terms of shot composition, lighting, uh, 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 motion capture, the things that actually matter when you're making a cartoon, there is no... <laughs> it's... it's, it's far superior like video games have been worrying about 3d animation for a long time before uh uh bandai got their uh uh, uh got got their hands on this thing and there's a lot of m little messy qualities to this thing uh we were joking a little earlier about uh how their mouths move and it's this is you know they're technically doing what's right in animation uh when to animate a mouth speaking in sync to dialogue which is not something that like traditional anime does traditional anime just has a lip flap the lip flaps are animated before that say you even come in and record so uh it's just you know the animator judges okay they're gonna speak about this rate and then the say you come in they don't really have to match those lip flaps very much uh um going back to dubs american dubs work far harder to follow those flaps than uh, uh any japanese performance ever does um, but in this, they're going with a CG production route where every you know they're going with pre-recorded dialogue and matching it to those uh, 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 to those things, and so they have to have the mouth make phonemes. Phonemes are the shapes that your mouth makes to make uh, uh, to produce the words. So you know if you say uh, uh, you there uh, uh, listening to this podcast, go and feel how like 
your teeth, you know, your your upper lip curls up and your teeth are uh, uh, exposed. Like that, that's your F phoneme or like TH, your tongue has to stick out and, and slap underneath the top of your teeth. Like, so they, uh, uh, and in each sound has its own shape that the mouth makes. Now, you as a human being don't actually make those specific shapes specifically for every single word. Your mouth is a lot, we slur our words a little bit more. Uh, we, uh, 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 you don't need to be as exaggerated, but this is a prod production that clearly has an experience, has an experimented with, uh, matching words to dialogue before. So they're like, oh no, if somebody's, you know, we need to have the biggest E you can, uh, uh, you could ever have. We need to have the biggest ah you, uh, 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 you ever had. And so their mouths are going a mile a minute trying to fit with this, uh, dialogue and because their shapes are so dedicated to just matching the sound, they it obliterates the actual uh, work of say uh, emoting. N you know, nobody can grimace when they're uh, when they're talking. Nobody can uh, uh, can smile because they're just trying to match it to the sound, and that's what they're thinking about. It's so fascinating. So, well, I think that's about it. As someone who's not an expert in animation, there's something about late 90s and early 2000s CGI that now, as a 35-year-old, just like scratches a certain part of my brain. Um, my nephew was over the other day, and he it was the, the, we turned the clocks that day. It was daylight savings, and he woke up really early. And this kid has a temper, so I had to keep him like contained so he didn't wake up the rest of the house. So it was 3 a.m., but really 2 a.m. and I watched all three Toy Story movies, and man, and I was also taking notes on this episode at the same time to be productive. And toy, there's something about Toy Story one and just the the jankness of the CGI that I just adore. Pixar was using that engine up until Cars two, and there's like watching Toy Story four compared to like Toy Story one. I just I want to go back in time. I know people accuse us of being old men on this podcast, but there's something just really aesthetically pleasing about early CG that I wouldn't have shared those same feelings in the early 2000s, for example. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, no. And uh, that's the other thing is that, like, uh, there are, like, in Toy Story, they are pushing the technology as hard as they possibly can. There is simply... You know, they're writing the software as they're going. Uh, so, like, uh, 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 I mean, the what is his name? Uh, one of the heads of the studio is, like, Ed Catmull. And he's one of the guys that, like, invented rendering to begin with. Mm. So, like, that's how... So, like, when, when there are, you know, some awkward tweens between poses, you can forgive it. You can say, okay, you're not playing with the full deck of cards. You're, you're still drawing the cards and putting them into the deck. Even then, the animation and like the, the 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 sheer quality of the visual storytelling. You know, there's still talented Disney layout artists who are saying, "Okay, we frame the shot like this. We use the colors like this. We use the lighting like this." And so, even with the uh, with some janky animation, the overall image is still high quality and uh, uh, has artistic merit. Not so with MS Igloo. The lighting is garbage. <laughs> the animation. Uh, uh, <sighs> there's a there's a part of me that wonders if uh there's a slight tangent but uh there's a part of me that wonders if uh, uh there is there's a quality to japanese mocap mm -hmm. that's 
I think I think we 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 all can identify. You know, like uh, uh, in like a what's it a Shinji? Uh, who's the Ghost in the Shell guy? Um, I was just actually thinking about him not too long ago. Wait, the, you mean the Ghost in the Shell? The oh, Aramaki. Like the, Shinji Aramaki. There we okay. go. Yeah. So like, she, uh, like, the, like if you watch a Shinji Aramaki, like you know, uh, pardon podcast listeners, I'm going to gesticulate. Um, but you know, there's like there's a quality where like everybody's overshooting and bobbing their heads. For, you know, if somebody says, "Are you okay?" then somebody else will do a full body nod. Um, <laughs> that's utterly inhuman. Um, I wonder. This was the thought that, that struck me when I was watching this episode. I wonder if part of that actually comes out of just the idea of dramatic physical, uh, uh, dramatic physicality in uh, Japanese acting, because they have you know they have like kabuki, like that is a there's there are specific broad gestures to that style of acting that are natural and accepted and looked for uh, 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 by a native audience, and I wonder if there's just some like translation there where you're saying. Where, like, I would be, you know, as an American, I'm looking for naturalism. I want this thing to look uh, uh, as real as possible because I'm very dull. And uh, whereas, uh, 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 you know, as a, as a physical performer, I think, you know, this is one of the reasons why, like, the Monster Hunter games uh, uh, are so good is because when they lift a heavy sword, it's not just, like, a heavy sword. It is the heaviest sword that has ever existed because there is so much exertion and over uh, animation. Ugh! You know, like, all of that is built into that performance as opposed to, you know, an American... And you kind of lump it. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm projecting there, but I think there might be something. I think you're onto something. Yeah, but and the lighting. I can't get. I can't get over how bad the lighting is in the <laughs> show. Um, uh, like that. The insides of their mouths are fully lit. Is wild to me. Like you can see down to their tonsils whenever they open up <laughs> their mouth, and that's just. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> The idea of like a rim light or a fill just seems to not exist. Uh, the reason, like, the 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 one shot where everything looks really really good is in the reentry scene, and that's because it's just naturally blasted out uh, uh, <laughs> from from the entry shot, and uh, uh, that's not good. Uh, you were I thought you were comparing this a little bit to Clone Wars, mm. um, and I do agree that like. Clone Wars has some real animation problems, especially early on, and it kind of never it kind of never goes away. There's there's an awkwardness to, to uh, CGI Star Wars that doesn't really go away until maybe the you know actually when it goes to being like a full Disney production with like uh, Clone Wars season seven or Bad Batch. Um, but the lighting's always on point. Mm. The uh, 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 the 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 cinematography is always on point. When I want when I first watched through Clone Wars, I found out I discovered that the best way for me to to watch it is a little out of the corner of my eye, kind of shrunk down on the side of a uh, screen, and it's, it's which sounds mean, but it's because then my eye is not looking at the individual performances, which are hinky, but at the overall image on the screen, which is actually being executed at a, at a fairly high level and yeah uh igloo ain't got that igloo is Igloo's a goofy mess uh and this episode set in a 
in the lowest polygon desert of all time, um, does does it no favors either. There's like a PMC will appreciate this. There's like a janky speed running quality to MS Sig. Like I like 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 as almost if you're like clipping through a sh- an animated show. Mm. I, I think that you know the, the way I would put it is that uh, there is a I think there's a quality of um, and it was a true especially I think of, of games at the time that you would have these texture popping problems you still have them sometimes but I think like Halo Two was like famous for them right you 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 would see a Halo Two cutscene and then it would like take a second for the textures to actually appear. And I almost feel that way about Igloo at times, where I'm like waiting for the textures to pop in. I'm waiting for some more to pop in. Um, almost kind of the same thing, like uh, you know, Dave, you mentioned the uh, the lighting around, like things that we don't need to see. You know, in like uh, in a, in a game, you're often putting the ca- like a speedrun context. You're putting the camera sometimes where it's not supposed to be because you're trying to get out of bounds. You're trying to do things, see things you wouldn't ordinarily see, including you know sometimes the inside of characters' uh, heads. I mean, I've I have like several emotes like based on this where it's just like we've seen things that we shouldn't have seen and that's kind of what it feels like a little bit is <laughs> like whoops I, I got the camera inside you know Lieutenant Oliver May's head that second one I just posted that's Agent Smith from uh, Matrix Path of Neo oh fantastic yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's like the uh, what is it what's the Assassin's Creed that takes place during the French Revolution 5v Whatever it is, remember those texture problems in the beat when that game launched. It was a big like meme thing. I believe you, but also With like, the eyeballs. I was so checked out on Assassin's Creed at that point. I say this not as an Assassin's Creed fan. Mm. I've never actually played an Assassin's Creed. Just watched roommates play it from afar in college. All right, let's I jump. Think- oh, go on, David. Just last thing, I do. I do want to say that like Igloo is also just a victim of its own time. Like there are there are technological advance, advances in just fundamental rendering that would have improved a lot of the problems that this uh, uh, show has that just you know they did they didn't exist. So like uh, talking about old Pixar movies not looking looking that great. Like the most important mo- one of the most important movies to me in my life is The Incredibles. Uh, that's the movie that made me want to be an animator. I went to art school because I wanted to be an uh, 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 to make a movie like The Incredibles. If you go back and look at uh, The Incredibles now. It looks really plasticky. Now, that's not to say that there is good animation. There's amazing animation in that movie. And, of course, there's amazing storytelling and and, uh, acting and all of that. But the characters just don't look alive. And that's because subsurface scattering hadn't been invented yet. That's the process of uh, ray tracing where, like, uh, light can travel inside of an organic body so that you get the warmth, you know, at fingertips or uh, uh, on your ears. That didn't really come around until Ratatouille. Uh, you watch Ratatouille, that's the first Pixar movie where human beings actually look alive and warm and uh, fleshy. And like that movie hold, you know, holds up incredibly well. And it's just because the technology to make human skin look like actual skin just didn't exist yet. Um, and so it's, uh, uh, I don't, be- you know, <laughs> there's no hope for poor Igloo in 2004 to even get close to that. Um, but anyway, anyway, by the way, Ratatouille rules. It's easily my favorite Pixar film. Another fine, uh, giant robot. Another uh, fine uh, mecha film. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Maybe we should cover on the podcast someday. I've I've never seen it, so I would do so. 
Oh, re- if there's one uh, Pixar movie mm. that you haven't seen that you want to see, and imagine you haven't seen a lot of them, Ratatouille is the one. I yeah. guess so. Sure. I mean, I, I, like two- I was going to say, Incredibles did make a big impact on me, but I was also a band nerd at the time, so like the Michael Giacchino mm. score... With all of like the LA killers in the in the big band, like that was that was like that made a big impact on me at the time. <laughs> yeah, there are two great works that uh, convert Mazinger into an organic uh, 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 beast. Uh, one is Devilman, and the other is Ratatouille. Yes, maybe I'll watch, maybe I'll throw that into the mix. Uh, Baby and Toddler here haven't seen Ratatouille yet. It's just been like Kiki's delivery service on repeat for the last three weeks. So I could I could afford to change it up a bit. All right, before we jump to the episode proper, we have a tradition on Giant Robot FM wherein we unearth and then read a dank summary of the episode we're covering from some ancient VHS or DVD release, or hell, maybe even a Laserdisc release. I forgot to do this last time, um, but I'm not going to make the same mistake twice, because hell, I own the DVD. I, I, all I had to do is take a snapshot with it of it with my phone. Um, normally PMC does it. David, though, requested this time to do the honors of reading the summary of MS Igloo Episode 2, courtesy of Bondi Visual, circa 2006. Uh, do you also want me to do the uh, Universal Century 0079, the prototype weapons men dream of consume their blood and tears? Oh, hell yeah. Okay, okay. All right. <clears throat> Universal Century 0079, the prototype weapons men dream of consume their blood and tears. It has been some half a century since human beings migrated to space due to the overpopulation of Earth. In Universal Century 0079, side 3, the farthest cluster of colonies from Earth began a war of independence against the Earth Federation government. This was the beginning of a massive and tragic war that is later to be called the One Year War. MS Igloo, Episode 2, Howls Stained in Dusk. Underneath the so- scor- hmm. Underneath the scorching sun, a soldier's elegy lingers on the battlefield of fiery sands. The mobile tank's vengeful cannon fires at its archenemy, Zaku. The prose is so flowery. I love it. Um, I was telling my co-host before we started recording, when I was doing my research, I read the ANN review of Igloo back in 2006, and whoever wrote the review was calling out the copy featured in this release, um, basically saying it's very um, purple. The prose is very purple. It's very verbose, which, I mean, in retrospect, I dig, but I can understand how some people might bounce off it. I feel like I'm reading summarized summaries when I'm reading this, the official summaries for um, the episodes. So episode two, Hal Stained in the Dusk. Traversing the sun-baked waste of the Arizona I desert. I think you mean the Battlefield of Fiery Sands? Yes, yes, true, true, the Battlefield <laughs> of Fiery Sands. Can't forget that. A squad of Zaku-2 mobile suits arrives at the 128th Xeon supply point. One of the pilots requests ammo. The on-duty soldier comments on his thick accent. Oh yeah? Well, I got my reasons, the Zaku pilot says, before pointing his 120mm machine gun at him. It's very funny how often accents are used as narrative conceits in UC Gundam. Like, doubly so, since the voice acting, at least in the dubs. But I have heard in the subs, in the original Japanese, they don't really differentiate the accents. Um, in 0080, famously, there's the bit with the Australian accent. Is it, is it an accent, or is it just the weather thing? 
Do they say accent in that? I thought it was just like there's no snow in at Christmas because it's summer. Did I misremember? I thought there was a bit with the no, voice. Well, uh, David Hayter still does the accent. Oh, he I does. Think that's okay. the important part. See, I, when I was flipping through, I think I had the 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 subs on. So I was just recently flipping through War in the Pocket because I was looking for bicycles, as one does. Another Christmas story. True. Gun, True. Gun, no one does it better. So you got 0080 with the Australian accent. In First Gundam, when Boone infiltrates the white base disguised as a fisherman, he urges his colleague to hide his Zeon accent, which Ocean chose to make German. I think Ocean was directed, though, by Sunrise uh, to make it German. Um, it's just very funny how this pops up like time and time again. Yeah, it's also interesting. I know we're going to discuss some of the, the later, maybe more substantive differences with um, the script of the Odex dub, but the also... The differences are wild yeah, in this episode. I mean, here it's like just... I, I feel like here it's pretty tame because they just... They, they sidestep this, although it's like... They're sidestepping, I think, a smaller issue here than the later change. Here, they uh, the, the infantryman says to... Uh, you know, to our to our Federation uh, masquerading as a Zeon soldier, he says, "Oh, your your Zaku is very battle scarred," uh, and this is have my reasons. And he points the gun. It's it's not a particularly long sequence before the uh, the cut to the OP. Um, but yeah, I, I I'm uh, it's very very interesting that they didn't, especially given that the if you have not listened to this Odex dub, and we've been including bits of it, uh, especially the Oliver May uh, epilogues in the. And that's what, if you've been if you listen to our previous MS Igloo episode, you heard some of the the Oliver May spiels that we included in there. And uh, I don't know what the Oliver May accent is supposed to be. Uh, I think I think before I had mentioned that it sounds like one of those and one of those accents that someone has where they have learned to speak like perfect fluent English, but but only have done so in the context of a school as opposed to actually talking to people. Which is nothing wrong with that, of course. I mean, congrats. You probably speak multiple languages that rules. Um, but, like, I definitely like, like, where are you from? I don't, this is not a place. Um, that's kind of the Oliver May accent. So, uh, but we'll get to the the point about the, the other big change later. The, the Odex dub, if you're only imagining it, isn't quite as unhinged as you might be hoping. It, it's not as... It doesn't. It's not as fast and loose with the details. Like I know there are differences with the original Japanese script, at least according to the subs. Um, but it kind of softens some of the rougher edges of the original Japanese. Um, so there aren't really like wild accents on display, and um, the voice acting isn't as hammy as you might think. It's fine overall. I wasn't expecting like when I was doing the history notes, I was like, yeah, there's this Odex dub, but I can't find it anywhere, and then. It dropped in my hand, uh, my lap, and unexpectedly, because when I, I I got some files, I was like, "Shit, this is dubbed." I, I uh, DM PMC. I'm like, "We got we got the Odex dub, my friend." But don't feel like you're missing out, um, people who don't have access to it. We'll try to include as much as we can, like PMC said. Um, just the notion of a Xeon accent makes me really want a version of Gundam where uh, everybody from uh uh. Which side is is Zeon? Three. Is that side side three? three? Where everyone from side three talks in full expanse Belter Creole. <laughs> that would be yeah. You, you I you could have a lot of fun with this. I feel like I do like the idea. It makes sense that there'd be different dialects between the colonies. I know why. Apparently. Imanishi was the one who pushed for the German accents. I don't know if that's how credible that is, but I've seen that online. 
it makes sense given what we know about the guy and just how aesthetically taken he is with some of you know the military uniforms of the German military. But whatever the case may be, I would have personally made the creative choice of making them all speak German, even though I think it's very fun in a dub context. But I do like the idea of just them having different dialects. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I would do, because making like a fake-ass dialect is like it's it's hard to do authentically well. So I don't know what I'd do in that situation. We then cut to the OP. Uh, then the episode proper opens with a Xeon newsreel, courtesy of the ZWPA. Today is the 5th of March. The first invasion of Earth has been launched. Earth's vastly inferior military capabilities have been no match against the mobile suits of the Principality forces. Our valiant troops remain undefeated worldwide. Headquarters reports that it expects Earth to be totally under Principality control by August. By the way, do we know what the ZWPA stands for? Xeon something something something. Public access? I don't know. The W is lowercase, which threw me off when I was uh, typing the acronym. Yeah, that it's, is I, it, unusual. It's weird using the like the just the phrase "public access" with Xeon. Something there's dissonance <laughs> there. <laughs> well, be this that is it, actually well. Uh, again, going back to that uh, that history book, another one of my f- uh, favorite uh, little bits is uh, Xeon has its own superhero show. Oh, it's like Cap. Yeah, it's like Captain Captain Zeon, and he's a superhero that goes around uh, beating up Federation uh, uh, forces. And kids loved it. And I love the idea of Zeon really uh, fighting up, having maybe even like a more pr- more successful propaganda mm. uh, uh, war than an actual material war. Yeah, that's fertile ground for some interesting storytelling too. All right, I, I know I I'm always the first person to bring up Star Wars. I'm sorry, PMC brought up first last time, so I'm gonna I'm gonna s- switch things back to the status quo here and uh, be the first person to bring it up. David alluded to this earlier. <coughs> Excuse me. I know it's low hanging fruit comparing the two franchises, but I had some fun um, comparing the similarities between MS Igloo and Clone Wars, especially when it comes to production. Like MS Igloo came out in 2004. Uh, I think the first season of Clone Wars aired in 2007, 2008. Um, so both were roughly same decade, at least. And both were part of a multimedia push to strengthen the brand of a wildly popular IP that had been around since the 70s. Both projects were fully CGI in a time when that production process was not streamlined. And both Igloo and Clone Wars chose the war serial as its storytelling mode. This is more true for Igloo, because Igloo definitely focuses on the rank-and-file soldiers. I know there's a lot of Jedi in Clone Wars, and the Jedi stories are important. The best episode of Clone Wars focused on the clones, so when I think about Clone Wars, I think back to the clone episodes, and that def- those episodes definitely focus on the rank-and-file soldiers, as opposed to Jedi, or in the MS Igloo, as opposed to new types. You know, counting the movie... Uh, both also have a far superior second episode cent- uh, centered around tank warfare, too. Oh, it's been so long. Are you referring to the Clone Wars animated film? Yeah, so if you if you include the, cl- the, the Clone Wars animated film as a first pilot episode, the second episode, which is the first one that was actually broadcast on TV, I believe, is the episode where Yoda takes a, uh, uh, a detachment of uh, clone troopers around and then he rips a tank apart. Yeah, that's where he meets up with uh, the the Flying King, right? 
Is there who they're trying to meet yeah. with? Yes, yes. Christophsis is the no, planet. Christophsis in- is the big urban planet where they keep returning to. Well, in the film, though, right? That's in the film. Oh, yeah, that's in the yeah. film. Yeah. I'm both channeling AMCA and Clone Wars, so I might be getting my wires crossed as I try best to remember these plot points. For some reason, that first episode with Yoda, though, stands out in my mind. A lot of Clone Wars episodes bleed together, but I remember what the planet looks like in that episode. I mean, it looks like garbage, but I remember it. One of the bog standard complaints and i'm not like entirely against this read either uh, about igloo is that the storytelling is way too sympathetic to the zeon side i think there's um grounds for that read um however i have seen people complain to, uh and denounce ms igloo as being straight zeon propaganda i get the perspective like i certainly get why telling a story from this angle would make viewers uncomfortable but for all its faults like two episodes in it does maintain a degree of distance from its subject matter like by this point in the story we've seen the high command neglect one of its squads we've seen a soldier resort to drug addiction to deal with the trauma of the job we've seen rank and file soldiers get picked off on the battlefield none of which would be subject matter fit for the propaganda reel i mean you wouldn't be showing like soldiers being sniped and picked off and you probably wouldn't show a soldier coping with the trauma of drug addiction yeah, I think I think you're like the points the especially going back to episode one, but also thinking about episode two with what um you know what the uh what's his name uh Demazir, Demazir is going through um the the acts of Zian like did like no positive spin was put on Operation British <laughs> that was no no application of positive spin was made to Operation British. Uh, or some of the other things that, you know, the way that the Zeon High Command is, is handling the soldiers. I feel like the thing that I'm... Okay, so we've already kind of, I think, alluded to a lot that some of the things that make us uh, wary of Imanishi and Igloo are comparisons between Zeon and German forces, especially as it relates to World War II, right? Like, that is kind of, I think, a, a like ground floor uh, thing. I feel like for me, in my brain, especially being uh, having an American perspective... And being subject to American politics constantly, I am like, I always have like my guns ready to go after anything that smells of of lost cause revisionism, you know, yeah. like because I often find myself comparing Zion to uh, to the Confederacy, to the Civil War, as as the sort of like, oh, weren't they great? Aren't they so romantic? And that's the thing that I find myself watching out for. And so the, the thing that I'm looking for is because I. I I think like the most interesting and the most compelling read for this is the one that I think David has spoken, which is the idea of the futility of what these folks are dealing with. I think that is like that is if I'm if I'm writing a sales pitch for why you should watch Igloo, that is probably where I'm going. And if I'm writing the like maybe you shouldn't watch Igloo, it is uh, the extent to which I think the the soldiers um, sort of like romanticize their particular forms of warfare like so far both episodes have ended with oliver may being like damn those guns sure weren't great weren't they it's a shame we lost them and i'm like "Mm, is it dog (laughs) is it really um you know like are you do you know what you're doing do you remember when you got into a fight with monique about operation british because i i you know i think we should talk about that brother and so like that is that is the thing i'm wrestling with so which to say Basically, you know, either way, I think you can find support in the text for how you want to argue about it. Um, 
But I do think, again, it is either way. Like, you really can, uh, you can, and that also speaks to the distance. It speaks to the fact that we aren't so often concerned with what May or the, you know, Captain Procknow or anybody thinks about, uh, like, the political landscape. Yeah, like, when we get to the end of this episode, when I when we get to the reveal of uh, uh, where this story goes from there, you will see what revisionist <laughs> history uh, uh, actually looks like. Don't worry, don't worry. So, like, I cannot, the, you know, uh, our heroes in MS Igloo, like, they're constantly underfunded. They're constantly being kicked out, uh, 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 screwed over by their their uh, thing. Like, the chain of command is is broken and dis. Uh, 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 you know, immediately after this uh, 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 propaganda uh, visual, you know, we immediately cut to upper the upper crust of Zion saying, "Yeah, the the war's not going good, and we can't su- support these supply lines." And you know, even even to the fact that, like, in the last episode, we saw Zaku's come in and completely wipe the floor with anything that uh, the the crew of the Yorgman Gander. Uh, was uh, working with and in this episode they're transporting Zaku's and they're going like well could we have one and they're like no those are for the people that matter so like this is abs- there is no watching this show and coming away with the idea that like Zeon High Command cares about its rank and file I don't think that that really uh, uh, comes through and uh, uh, if there is like I also, this is something that I've been kind of thinking about is, uh, uh, I think that in the same way that we want to avoid glorifying atrocities caused by evil regimes, I think we also, as people, have a hard time remembering that human beings are still human beings and have complicated reasons for doing the things that they do. And it's, it's, it, it's very hard to hold those two thoughts in, in your head. I think that right now in our world, there are a lot of places where it's, where the temptation is to look at the horrors that are going on and then take, uh, 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 uh I run a, I run a, a star Wars blog and, uh, I keep thinking about how the com- the comfortable thing about the Empire is that the Empire has no civilians. There is no such thing as, you know, like there are planets that are controlled by the Empire, but everybody inside of the Empire is, you know, they are a faceless skeleton man. You can blow them away. They don't have to worry about, uh, about them having families back home. You don't have to worry about them having jobs. Uh, and I think that it's, again, not to say that like, the tr- you, know, you can hear me being very very careful to thread uh, to thread this uh, this needle, but it's because as you know, uh, 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 the people on both sides of war are still people, and I you know personally I uh, 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 I want to respect and keep in mind the basic dignity and value of human beings. Even as, you know, even as Zeon wiped, you know, looking at the map that they that they show, there is a circle for Sydney. There is a wet circle for Sydney because that doesn't exist anymore. There is a, 
you know, uh, uh, in the course of the One Year War, there have already been horrible atrocities uh, 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 that that have occurred. But that doesn't necessarily mean that any given person inside of a Zaku is any less human being than I am. I don't know. It's boy, I'd feel awkward talking about this stuff. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we're um, we're hosting a Turn A Gundam podcast in the year twenty twenty three, so we know how you feel. Yeah, yeah, like like you know, again. It, we, we don't want to live in the world where uh, uh, the the moon race finds a cow. You know that's too complicated. We just want to say, ah, well, here's our here's the bad guys. We can just we can just deal with the bad guys because they're bad. And now that's not again like that's not to say that MS Igloo necessarily has like a super complicated view of humanity. Like when we get to the Federation dude, he is the most evil person you've ever seen in your life. Um. So, like, it's, uh, 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 I don't think that it's playing necessarily that complicated, but I do think that you can, you know, you can possibly tell a story about, uh, 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 and possibly tell a story about a Nazi where that, where just because they're a Nazi doesn't necessarily discount their lived experience as a human being. Likewise, I think that in this story, because we're talking about people who fight for for Zeon, that doesn't discount their their lived experiences as human beings. And in fact, this episode is all about how their lived experiences as human beings are possibly the only important part of their thing because they are absolutely not <laughs> contributing to anything else. David, you mentioned uh, Imperial soldiers not having family. I have, I have a qualm with that. Uh, my, my good friend Seal Karn has a mother, and she sucks. Uh, he's C-Sec, not Imperial. Fair. All right. Fair enough. I have a, a, mm-hmm. a, a bigger Star Wars sicko than I am on the podcast. Not yet. Maybe he'll, maybe like he'll marry into the Imperial family. <laughs> Here's <we> hoping. <laughs> Soon. Actually, Andor it, season it's, it's two. Been, it's been so long, and... AMCA has been a hiatus for a while. Well, not a hiatus, but I've um, been listening because I haven't played Knights of the Republic in a while. But anyway, I forgot Cyril's name. I had to Google it, so I feel bad. My boy Cyril. You can, you just remember it because that's his favorite food, too. Oh, the cereal. Yep, cereal carn. He is what he eats. I got a, I got a, I got a joke about how America is like Xeon because... They're having trouble maintaining supply lines in Arizona. That's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> David, you bring up a really good point. I mean, that's really the thesis of Gundam, too, just showing that there are human beings on both sides. And it's usually about how institutional forces really fuck things up for the average person, which is a, 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 which is what I really like about Tomino Gundam works. And to be honest, I like the complexity there, but take something like Deep Space Nine and just, uh, instead of representing a, an alien species as a monolithically, monolithically evil population, like the Cardassians, a lot of them suck, but there's also poets and artists among those ranks. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, going back to Star Wars, uh, uh, you know, in the opening, uh, the really good Clone Wars episode and uh, uh, side mention in, I think, the Attack of the Clones opening where it says there are heroes on both sides Mm. and you know like you know uh uh, looking at the clone wars from the from the from the future you're like oh no wait but all the ill you know sure uh uh what's his how am i forgetting his name not count dooku uh the the, the robot man uh he's part of the guild you know i I, I was thinking the other guy you know he is all he needs is a is a large mustache to twirl, and he's you know like he's that level of evil. But in the course of history, 
the separatists are the right side. Like they they're they're the ones that are actually doing what would be best for the galaxy if with the foreknowledge of uh, 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 everything everything to come. So like it's 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 messy. I like it's good for things to be messy and for us to take them that way. Yeah. And this is something we'll talk about, too, with OE the Mess team, is the complaints are the same, but reversed, because people think that is very propagandistic uh, in its depiction of the Federation, which I would push back against a bit. I would push back against that read for most things. I think a lot of people like um, very simple reductionist takes, and by saying something is straight propaganda usually doesn't apply. I have read and read and watched so many things. There are very, very, very few things that I would say is straight propaganda. Yeah, and I mean... That's the part of the quality is, again, like, if you tell a story about human beings interacting with each other, you're going to find some some level of empathy with, with them. It doesn't matter what they are. Andor is actually a great example of that. There's a, a, a what's the name of, this podcast is going to be a lot of me saying, what's the name of, what's the name of the uh, the spy lady? I just had the Andor character sh- page up. Wait, <laughs> the, back, the, the Imperial Intelligence spy lady? Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> I should know this. Uh, Wait, is it it's Dedra? Yeah, Dedra. Yes. Dedra Miro. Um, like, in the, or, at the start of that show, you are rooting for her to, f- to, uh, uh, to uncover the, re- uh, the rebellion. They do such a good job of putting you in your shoes, and you're like, oh, yeah, well, I, have, I too, have had times where my boss didn't believe in what I was doing. I, too, have struggled inside of in, inside of systems. Uh, and then when she actually succeeds, you go, oh, no, she's going to do war crimes. Uh, <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's that's just the nature of storytelling is if you embed in, inside of uh, any given community, you will see community, and community is human. I will go absolutely apeshit if Sheev Palpatine shows up in season two of Andor. I think about it like every other day. Like, what if what if he shows up? Did you know that Palpatine is the first named character in all of Star Wars other than Luke Skywalker? I did not know that, no. Yeah, um, it's uh, from the novelization. Uh, Star Wars, Luke Skywalker novelization uh so uh there was a novelization uh ghost written by alan dean foster that came out uh like three months before the movie actually came out Mm -hmm. and it has a different uh like opening crawl uh you know like like paragraph than what uh than what's in the movie and it explicitly names palpatine in that opening uh uh Text. For first name too, she um, Sheev's not in there, but it it definitely cites. Uh, I think he might also be called President Palpatine. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's a little too on the nose. It's a little on the nose. Um, but it really blew my mind that like in nineteen seventy nine uh, uh, or in nineteen seventy six, like if the first thing you see is uh, Star Wars from the Adventures of Luke Skywalker. Okay, I guess Luke Skywalker's in this. And then you open up the front page and the other name, and the first name you get is Palpatine. And then it just never actually gets said in it, it until, I think, Return of the Jedi? Yeah, I think that's yeah, right. Yeah, just, it's, it's just yeah. the old woman in the, uh, like, the shrouded figure of the old woman in Empire without unnamed. Shout out to that old woman who has uh, disappeared from history. 
So this newsreel, this we get like a little nice map. I love me some maps, and we get a map of Earth, and we get a nice like bird's eye view of the Xeon controlled territory on Earth. I guess roughly six months into the war, sometime into the war, at least halfway into the one year war. Um, this it's you know this is propaganda, baby. So this map plays a fast and loose with the facts. It's an idealized vision of what we're meant that we're meant to contrast with the harsh realities of the invasion. Even though we don't see a lot of those harsh realities, the character one character says the invasion is not going well. And if you've seen First Gundam, you know that the invasion is not going very well. But even though I'm sure they don't like control all of this territory, um, this matches up with what we know from First Gundam and other related media. Like, we know that Garma is running things in North America. We see that in First Gundam. We know that the Federation is holding on to a sliver of territory in South America around Jaboro, um, First Gundam. We know that fierce fighting rages on in the forest of Southeast Asia, OHMS team. And we know that despite the fucking colony drop, Xeon forces are entrenched in Australia. And, and everyone knows this piece of media, Gundam Side Story 0079, Rise from the Ashes. I mean, you joke, but it's honestly not wrong. That is, you know, one of the earlier pieces of very much localized Gundam media. David, have you ever played that one where you're a big Dreamcast fan growing up? I never. I uh, I believe... Is, is Rise from the Ashes the one that's set in where you play from the cockpit of your mobile suit, or is that yes. Blue Destiny? Okay. I mean, I they're, least... they're both from the cockpit. Okay. Um, I played a little of Rise from the Ashes, but it was just over my head. I was I was young and dumb, and what I really wanted to play was Jedi Power Battles. So mm-hmm. um, That's fair. No, I mean, Thank Rise from the Ashes was a game that it took me like four tries to be like, okay, I can play this now. <laughs> like, it, it kept not being the game I wanted it to be, and then eventually I was like, all right, fine, I'll meet <sighs> you on your own terms, jeez. Blue Destiny, like the game takes three minutes. Like the the game length is like three minutes, but it's it's a lot of fun to play. A very simple game. Blue Destiny is like a Saturn first person shooter, but like you have lock on, so it's basically just you you jump around the the sort of Saturn three D environment, which is its own charming thing, and then just shoot 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 shoot. Oh, yeah, it's kind like of the, like a uh, uh, oh, what's the Panzer Dragoon. A little yeah. bit like that, yeah. I mean, you're you are controlling your movement, and you're like you know strafing around hmm. a center point. Uh, but it is honestly, yeah, not 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 that different. The game basically plays itself. It's like the Final Fantasy twelve meme. Nice. So we get that cool map. Love me some maps. Um, we then cut to the Jotunheim, along with a fleet of Xeon supply ships floating above Earth's atmosphere. On the bridge, Executive Officer Kruger informs Captain Prokno that they're in order they're in orbit to drop the supplies. There's no sign of the enemy in the operation area, he adds. Just as planned, Prokno declares, before inquiring as to the location of Special Operations Lieutenant Monique Cadillac, whom he refers to as the troublesome lady. After all, she is the highest ranked officer on board the Jotunheim. On cue, we cut to the hangar of the Jotunheim, where Monique oversees preparations for the supply drop. Overhearing her sharp tone with the men, Prokno compares her, compares her to his mother's Yorkshire Terrier. My goodness, she barks so much. There are, yeah, QR uh, surprised and uh, 
quasi-disgusted reactions. Um, there are many discrepancies between the original script and the Odex dub. Um, like, for whatever reason, I think the reason is to be less offensive. They changed Prochno's dialogue here. He doesn't compare Monique to a dog. Um, he more generally comments on her personality. But again, this is one of many uh, differences between the Odex dub and the original Japanese. I would be very curious if anyone following along uh, has, like, Japanese comprehension. Because we're... <laughs> We're comparing a woman to a dog. In English, the word that you would use is bitch, right? That is what we were dancing around in terms of, you know, whoever wrote the subtitles likely was dancing around this. I would be curious if, you know, if, if there was some sort of obscenity or vulgarity or, you know, what was the connotation? Because uh, obviously, again, that's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with colloquial terms and connotation. Um, you know, the, the English dub, they choose to be very non-controversial and avoid it. Uh, but like, mm, boy, <laughs> you know, tell me how you really feel. Like, I, I wonder to what extent it's it is like um, it, it's meant to reflect on these two, or is it really meant? Is it really about Monique? Um, I, I mean, look, it's kind of it's it's such a passing moment, and uh, I think we get to the more meaty stuff with you know Monique's interactions or you know contemplation of uh, Demazir later. But like. Leave her alone. Look, I mean, if we're going to judge her, if we're going to judge her, we're going to judge Monique on the basis that we can compare her to, say, Dedra, for example, and that she is like a, a girl boss war criminal more so than she's trying to get the job done. Because as far as I can tell, the people in the hangar are not doing a good job and she's on top of them. Is this an, an example of some misguided parallelism? Because later, doesn't Monique also compare uh, uh, Sonan to, oh. uh, to a dog? Yes, the stray dog. And yeah. also, uh, uh, the tank itself is, uh, what's his name? Hrolfinger? Hildolfer? Uh, Hildolfer, which is, uh, 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 which means war wolf. And the name of the episode is Howls Stained in the Dusk. So is there supposed to be some sort of dog metaphor going through mm. this? Yeah, I think that's... I don't... I think you're yeah. right, but like also... Yeah, they shouldn't have this done this part of it. Everything else is fine. <laughs> but You can make a creative decision and also have it be the wrong creative decision. Yes. I don't know why he just doesn't call her bad caviar. Because I'm, I'm, I don't know how many times I compare human beings to bad caviar. Just, you know, <laughs> in my lexicon. We'll get there, don't worry. Prochno then orders Kruger to increase surveillance. He doesn't want to be taken unawares. After all, they're especially vulnerable during a supply drop. Fortunately, for them, no attack comes. The operation proceeds without interruption as scores of Papua-class ships, as well as the Jotunheim, drop thousands of containers into Earth's atmosphere. I will never not pop for atmospheric re-entry sequences. Um, they scratch the parts of my brain that like to see... So number one creative responses to complex problems and number two utilitarian technology at work i think we get less of the former here um when uh when i'm talking about creative responses to complex problems i'm thinking like the first gundam episode one of my favorite episodes of cowboy bebop wild horses um, but i think this scene delivers on the mechanical details like seeing all the gizmos lock into place before the supplies are dropped is very very satisfying and um, the staging here reminds me a bit of the last jedi when the resistance bombers are getting into position above the dreadnought uh, an equally satisfying scene from a mechanical perspective i 
feel like this is almost more satisfying to me. Maybe it's just as an adult than necessarily seeing the Battle of Loom is just getting an understanding of what was Zeon's approach to moving personnel and supplies onto the surface of the earth. Um, because it is, a, you know, it is a, a problem. It's especially a, a logistical problem. And it kind of, I, I like, that's the number one thing that excites me about this episode in terms of filling in the fiction is a, how, how do they move stuff onto the surface of the earth and B how did it, how is it a problem? And we get to see it pretty quickly because there's just, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of surface area for, you know, people like our, our Federation hero, uh, to go, you know, throw throw stuff in the in the works, um, you know, put gum in the works. So it, yeah, this is a really this is like this to me is like I oh, forget Battle Loom. This is the real stuff. This would look so good too if you were in the Bondi Museum in two thousand four. Like this is what you paid to see. Yeah, everybody. Uh, my favorite part of the giant robot. The, wow, cool logistics. That's yeah, that's, uh, that's right. me and Gundam. Look, we look every time we think about this, it just goes back to to Tom Asnable and his love of the giant mecha trucks. All right, and Tom is right. Well, we'll have him on soon enough. That's uh, Tom is going to be our guest for for episode three of Igloo, and so I'm sure hopefully we can get his comments on logistics then. Yeah, I bet ninety percent of that episode is going to be Zoo to talk, <laughs> and I haven't seen it yet. Mm, me neither. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. I kind of like the episodic nature of Igloo and the kaleidoscopic look it gives us of big moments in UC military history. Like, granted, it doesn't really provide us the space to get to know any of these characters. But keep in mind also, this was screened in theaters um, as a special event. So, you know, if you're going to the IMAX to see a documentary on glaciers in the Antarctic... It's, you go in with different expectations than you would like an art house film. So like I get it. The emphasis is on the mechanical details and the, this weird CG, like this weird technology displayed in CG. Um, but I think the more impersonal nature of the writing works on a world building level. I also, again, like uh, uh, like the implication that it's been six months since the, uh, uh, since this crew has seen any combat. There were six months that you do not need to know about these people because nothing happened. Yeah, what's the Austin Powers joke? There was a, an oil spill and a flock of seagulls, and that's about it. That's what happened those six months. I always go to that joke for some reason. When you see a movie, like at a certain age, like I saw Austin Powers when I was in elementary school, those lines stick with me for whatever reason. Flashback sometime before the operation when Lieutenant Oliver May conferences with Albert Schacht, Schacht? My, my German's off, but anyway, with Albert, his direct superior, who briefs him on another piece of experimental Xeon tech, the YMT-05 prototype mobile tank Hildolfer. The 603rd's mission is to perform ground tests on Earth after receiving it. Without rocking the boat too much, Oliver respectfully questions their assignment. All of Albert all evaluation for this mobile tank was completed two years ago. Schacht tells him that after the ground test, the Hidolfer will be left and deployed on Earth. No need to collect it, he says. And then goes on to say that their forces are sinking in a swamp that infinitely swallows supplies. Yeah, so this is what I love about Igloo in a scene. It's not just that our heroes are minor players in a lot larger conflict. It's that they are testing weaponry that has already been canceled in a war that is already being lost. Like, he explicitly says, the ground invasion is not going as well as we are telling people. 
Uh, and like that's six months, you know, again, six months in, like there is no illusion once, once you're behind the ranks about how bad things are going. And of course things are going bad. Like the whole point of Xeon taking the earth is that the earth is the place that has resources. When you're stranded out in space, that can be uh, uh, held against you. That they are still having to do supply drops from uh, 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 from outer space to keep their forces secured means something has gone terribly wrong. Um, so I, but again, like I love that. This is this is this is clearing out a uh, a storage facility is what this is. They had this tank sitting on mothballs and they just needed to get it out. And that is all that uh, uh, that is going on here. It's a uh, if there was going to be a Coen Brothers Gundam uh, story, it would be something close to this. Mm. Um, and I just, I love that f- there are very few war stories that embrace this kind of futility. Yeah, agreed. A Coen bro- that's an interesting pitch, a Coen Brothers Gundam film. Like, I feel like every episode of Igloo could end with J.K. Simmons uh, in uh, The Informant mm. uh, going, what do we learn? I guess we learn not to do it again. That's good. Back on the Jotunheim, maintenance crews prepare the Hadolfer for re-entry and subsequent combat. Oliver, watching from above, compares the 603 to the Hadolfer. Are him and his team equally as undervalued? I feel like the writing of Igloo has noticeably improved in episode two, um, which is a fact that I, Stephen Hero, credit to Hiroshi Onogi, um, this is the only episode from this initial batch not written by series director um, Takashi Imanishi. I think it shows, like I hate to use this term because it's fallacious and I've used it before just because I don't have another term that works as well. Um, but the script feels more literary in that there's a greater emphasis on characterization, um, like Demazir Sonin. There's a lot of parallelism at work, um, the Hidolfer metaphorically standing in for either the 603 or Sonin. And I feel like the structure is more ambitious, the juxtaposition of reality versus propaganda. The propaganda reel at the end was surprisingly clever. I was like, Igloo, I was not expecting that from you. Um, I was like, that's pretty good, my friend. Um, But I do expect the writing to dip a bit with episode three. Um, I'm not the biggest Imanishi fan. I feel like his qualities as a writer leave a lot to be desired. He has clear Xeonic biases, biases, which really show up in Stardust Memory, which I think is fraught with issues. And he has a tendency to fetishize the military in a way I'm not super fond of. Onogi in the interview says like he's a military guy, but I feel like someone like Imanishi takes it to a whole nother level. And there are times I'm fine with it. Like they're like, I'll be like, Imanishi, I don't want, I don't need your military shit. If you're Hideo Kojima and you're going all in on your military shit, yeah, give me those proper nouns, dog. Yeah, it's one thing to write Stardust Memory 0083. It's another to write Stardust Memory 0069. That's much better. Mm. Nice. Nice. Now you're talking. (laughs) Oliver's musings are interrupted by a soldier who sidles up behind him. I'm the one who's been assigned to operate the Hadolfer. I'm Demizere Sonin. After introductions are made, Demizere succumbs to a shaking fit. He takes a pill which he refers to as a mint, to regain his composure. Okay, I so, need... Okay, wow. All right, textual question. I'm very dumb. Is there... Does the text make clear what his situation is? Is it PTSD? Is it some underlying condition? Did he fail the mobile suit test because he has some other chronic condition? 
is it drugs like like you know like handing out meth and or is it you know is it actually medication do we get a clear answer on that uh he has terrible breath and he just needs to constantly be popping altoids or else people are going to start passing out i would also Um, be shaking if my breath was that bad 100 percent halitosis i i don't believe there is any official com there's uh uh any real official commentary on uh, uh on this but in the continual World War II, uh, you know, Axis uh, parallels, uh, Sonin's habitual drug use uh, parallels a lot of the same kind of stimulant use that were uh, given to soldiers that were used to, uh, to combat battle fatigue, which we would now call PTSD. Um, the U.S. Army prescribed Benzedrine, which uh, is speed, uh, to soldiers. They actually did a, a, st- a study where they also handed out caffeine pills. Uh, again, the goal is to reduce the effects of PTSD. The caffeine pills were as effective as speed for combating those issues, but the soldiers got addicted to the speed, and so they kept requesting, we want more speed, and then the and the U.S. Army was like, if you want speed and we'll keep fighting, we'll keep giving you speed. Um, in the uh, 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 in Nazi Germany, uh, the drug of choice was called uh, uh, pervitin, which was literally methamphetamines. Uh, now, uh, it, it is actually um, not true that Hitler was high on meth when he uh, 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 in his bunker. Uh, he preferred oxycodone, but uh, basically everybody in uh, Nazi Germany was blasted off on uh, 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 some kind of high-powered drug. Uh, it was the style of the time. But I really do think that, like, this sort of you have you're an old soldier you are uh uh you there are effects that are that are uh, uh in your body that you cannot control here's some drugs just keep going i think that's something uh uh to this there's i don't i don't know if i put it in here later but something that kind of popped to me is that uh when sonin is actually fighting in his tank uh there's a lot of emphasis placed on him loading shells into the into the gun, and I wonder if that's uh, a parallel to him loading himself with pills. That a mm. tank is just a gun, and a gun is only as good as uh, 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 as his ammunition. Is Sonin only good because he's a loaded gun? I actually have a note about... I think that's a really good observation, David. Uh, PMC, I didn't want to cut you off there. I was just going to say, I think I, I, I heard David saying that Sonin is an old soldier at the same exact moment my eyes watched went over to his character bio in the shared document and saw that he is 34 years old (laughs) (laughs) oh we're now older than i'm well i'm speaking for myself here i'm older than sonin now Mm -hmm. i just made the jump from 30 uh 34 to 35 let me actually read that bio real quick because i've been trying to spotlight um the booklet that came with the original dvd release as much as possible um an ex-instructor in the tank training unit he has known Cadillac since then. As a tank operator, he is among the best, but he was tagged as unfit to be a mobile suit pilot. Because of this, he has become a lost soul. He is 34 years old. The worst fate any man can face. Lost soul at 34. Never recovered. There is, there is a novelization. I bet we get a little bit more sewn in like a sentence or two talking about this. Zappa reached out. He um, wanted to me to mention that in the Blu-ray release, um, his line is subbed as Mince. 
but his voice line says dope. I don't know if he says, I don't think it's in English, so he must be uh, picking out the Japanese here, which oh, is interesting. Oh, really? Yeah, well, so the, the Odex dub says candy, which, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, is interchangeable with men's. Yeah. It's like Phoenix Wright hamburgers. Yeah. Donuts, but it's, it's was it rice? <laughs> rice balls. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, this dude sometimes um, now based on the homunculi CGI it's not always I don't always get this comparison he has a real Gary Sinise Forrest Gump feel about him um, I know that Mark mentioned that they put all these images in a meat grinder like all these perceptions of westerners and just threw it into a CGI gener- like generator to make up these uh, characters they weren't based off of like, real people but I don't know something about like Gary Sinise and Forrest Gump as Lieutenant Dan I, the physically, I, they look the same to me sometimes. Yeah, he's got he's got kind of he, he's got some Popeyes. Yeah, David, did you post this picture in the notes? Yeah, I was uh, looking him up uh, 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 just just for some additional information, and it's very interesting to see how he looks. How all of the because the Igloo crew eventually shows up in other Gundam media, and eventually they have to be drawn because you can't just. Uh, 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 Bandai's not crazy enough to just throw in these CGI renders alongside uh, hand-drawn animation. Um, oh, please, please. I, I know, would pay money for that. Um, so all of the characters eventually get, you know, like, in the trading card game, here's a pic- you know, here's a drawn picture of Monique Cadillac, uh, where she looks, you know, very nice. Uh, and uh, in his drawings, like, you know, it's very interesting to see these characters converted into talented drawings by actual artists uh it's like oh that's what you're that's what you're going for uh, but i really like this illust- this pencil illustration from the the novel where he looks kind of like a, a very sad lance henriksen um i don't know he's got that that kind of like my face was chiseled out of stone uh uh quality uh maybe it's maybe it's the short hair too uh but um I don't know. I, th- I I could I could see Lance Henriksen playing this character in a in a live action version. I mean, not not anymore. He's very old, but back then he looks better in the drawing. I'll say that. Um, the bug eyes in the CGI throws me off a bit. He's got kind of like the thing that I keep thinking about is that he looks, and I I could not tell you uh, who the who the person is, um, but he looks. I know that I have seen a Japanese actor who plays like a bunch of who in a lot of like modern stories plays like a low level Yakuza thug. He's got like mm. that, that kind of like, like trashy gangster look to him. And I don't know. Yeah. You know, like blade licking thief look about him. Yes. I love how with our guests, we can just like speak another language and we're all in the same wavelength, but there must be listeners who are like, what the fuck are they talking about? My wife has no idea what I'm talking about in my microphone for five hours a week. Admiring his beloved tank, Demazir runs through some spectex. Its maximum speed is 110 kilometers per hour, and it has a 30-centimeter turret. It's a mobile tank. It'll be mass-produced sooner or later. We definitely need this to take command on Earth. Um, I will say this before I have a quick comment here. Um, you give me 50 Hadolfers, I will rule the world. That's all Napoleon needed. 50 even 15 Hadolfers. That's all you need. I'll save my Hadolfer talk for later. I just want to get that out of the way. Um, but I feel like... So we talked about... Or I talked about 
this script having a little bit more of a literary quality, which is fallacious, I get it, because, you know, films have their own language. You don't need to um, compare films to books to justify it, but I I don't have another word for it. Um, But I feel like what the writer is going for here is by justifying the Hidolfer's existence to the top brass, Demiziri is justifying his own existence. I have nothing more to add to that, because I feel like there's nothing more to say, but I think that's the angle they're going for. Mean, oh. I do, uh, I do think that it's interesting that uh, this tank is uh, the concept of uh, the Hidolfer. The Hidolfer is almost like, again, like uh, when I was saying that Igloo is kind of like fan service, but it's like the opposite of fan service, where it's it's in the same way uh, PMC, where you're like. It's giving me the supply drops. Like, that's what I really want. <laughs> like, this is the one that says, well, it would ac- actually, you would be a much more effective military if you used tanks instead of giant robots. Like, let's be real here. A tank is better because it's got treads. <laughs> and uh, so, like, there's something really charming about, uh, you know, the, the the important part of the uh, the Hidolfer is not that it has arms. It's not that it uh, can transform it's that it has a very high speed and a large turret. These are the act. These are the actual qualities that will make it win battles. The other stuff is just you know it's 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 candy for kids. Um, and I think I, I there's something about that that's really charming. Yeah, like watching MS Igloo is sometimes like going trick or treating. You're just going from door to door saying, "Can I have some more candy, please?" And they just say, we hand you out the Hadolfer. Meanwhile, in the same hangar, Washia pleads with Monique to let him pilot one of the backup suits stored on the Jotunheim. She lets him down gently. Afterwards, floating to her next destination, she makes eye contact with Demizir. There's a flash of shared recognition between the two. This is a crazy sequence, by the way. It is uh, one step away from uh, uh, having the music from uh, Kill Bill. Um... (laughs) There is nothing else stylistically like this in, I think, all of Igloo. Uh, I'm glad that it's here. It's it's very jarring. It's very it's also very jarring too because it comes off the reminder of the, like the existence of this comic relief character who like I really don't know if they're going to do anything. Like I am, let me tell you, I'm a I'm a bully and a hater. I am ready. I am ready to hate Washia every moment he opens his mouth. And so to like have that be going on here, to have me like sharpening my knives, getting ready, and then it immediately goes into this, you know, I think David pulled on the same reference I would have with the, uh, you know, the Kill Bill recognition uh, between Demazir and Monique. It's uh, a very strange sequence. And also, too, that it doesn't like, it doesn't immediately go anywhere. It's just the recognition. And Monique is like, cool, I'm out now. See you later. <laughs> that's a good point I wonder if the novelization like fleshes out some of these character beats just a little bit more the novelization stuffs Washia into a locker and takes his lunch money I can <laughs> I wonder dream if, I wonder if he's going to have a slightly bigger role in episode 3 or I guess episodes 4 through 6 for that matter and I assume I, David you've seen MS Igloo 2 right? yeah is it all the 603? Yeah, it is. Okay. Uh, and then the third series is uh, uh, its own thing. Mm. 
Following the mass supply drop, Monique addresses her officers on the bridge. Confirming the operation. The Hildolfer will be dropped by the Kamusai and commence with testing. As the chart indicates, our target is the Arizona 67th supply point. After being dropped from orbit, the Hildolfer will receive final shakedown on Earth before commencing with tests. We will be dividing the battle evaluation into several phases. Now, based on our data, the 67th will this be... This is perfect. <laughs> Any commentary about the Komusai? Um, I feel like this is a very little scrappy ship. I don't know if I have anything like critical to say about it, but it's a cool design. In the uh, intro, in the, uh, the booklet that com- came with the DVD, um, there's a little bit of text describing it. Quote, a small ship used for entering the atmosphere is attached to the bow of Xeon's light cruiser Musai. I feel like this guy is just like the, like the classical workhorse, you know, atmospheric reentry guy. I mean, this he shows up a lot in First Gundam. Like the Komusai is probably... Besides the Musai or like, you know, in terms of Xeon ships, it's like the one that you see the most often, which makes sense. It's, you know, it's a workhorse ship. Um, yeah, no, no, I'm just kind of, cl- I, I appreciate this sort of very utilitarian thing. Just carrying on its job. I always get the Musai confused with the Gallops because I like the name Gallop better. <laughs> um, here's a, just because I want to splice this in here. Uh, did you know that... Uh, what's the name of the Rebel Blockade Runner? The... T- uh, the t- damn. Hold on. Steve, I know you you're talking. talking. I don't know. It was on your tongue. Tantive? No. It is no. the Tantive. Now, that sounds horrible. But that is because a Tantive is a... Co- is, a uh, uh, is a... Well, it's a kind of gallop that uh, uh, that horses do. So you would tan. You, so I, I think that it's really interesting that the Rebel Blockade Runner is also a Gallop uh, mm. class ship. A few episodes ago, I talked about words that I find the pairing of pairing of words that are really euphonious, like the Tolkien quote with cellar door. Mm. Um, blockade Runner is another phrase that just sounds great. Blockade Runner, Chef's Kiss. Yeah, yeah, because you you hit the wall with blockade and then you escape with runner that ship design owns so hard that was the original design for the millennium falcon hmm. uh there's there are old uh concept arts uh from ralph McQuarrie where that is the ship that they are going to in docking bay 97 and then uh space 1999 came out and their main ship wound up looking very similar to the uh to that design and so they wound up uh changing it to the uh, the hamburger design. Anyway. That sounds great, Demazir declares, interrupting her. With these tests, I can prove that the evaluation given to the Hadolfer two years ago was unjustified. Those engineer people have no idea what a re- real battle is all about. He then takes another mint. A lot of shade um, being thrown at engineers in the show. I, it's interesting to me too because we don't know the context of why they sidelined it, right? For all we know, it's just like, yeah, we don't have the resource they use to build these, and like we're just, it's just not going to work out. Um, and also, but like you have engineers here, like the the whole reason you're riding this, buddy, is because the engineering team is doing it. It's very strange to me. I, I like I get that kind of idea of like that. Demazir is, you know, he's a real soldier. He knows what tanks are about. Um, but like, 
you know, your team is here with you. Like they clearly also wanted to succeed, even though I think, I think at this point, the six or third team after their first experience is like a little more sober about what they're doing. But like Demazir is in on it. He is committed to the bit. I just like that space noids like their Altoids. <laughs> Changing topics. Monique says that Lieutenant May will be recording the test progress while she'll be taking command of the operation. This last point visibly upsets Demazir. Captain Prochno cuts in to point out that the 128th supply point was attacked and destroyed 10 days ago. There might be enemy forces, he adds. Secure in the Komusai, Monique and Oliver prepare for their orbital drop. Before the operation commences, Oliver asks if she knows Commander Sonin from before. She doesn't give a direct response. Bad caviar is still bad caviar, but a bad soldier is worse than a stray dog. This is such a Kojima-ass bit of dialogue. Like, this belongs in a codec call. Is bad caviar still caviar? I feel like we say- bad pizza is still pizza, but, like, rancid caviar is not fit for human consumption right is this when we say bad are we talking spoiled you know quality is it just low quality is that still true though okay first off on the call have we have we all had caviar i have not actually i i have yes okay yeah one time i think my parents like took me along on like a norwegian line cruise and i think I once encountered caviar. It is just salty. It's like salty fish eggs. It's kind of interesting, but like, I don't know. I'd rather just have anchovies or something. Um, but like, it's <laughs> very strange to me. Be like, like, I get caviar is brought up as like a, like a thing of luxury. And so like I'm, I'm trying to even just discern the meaning of this, which is to say, <laughs> Is it that like caviar is such a high grade object that even the lowest form of it is still like good? Like, you know, like if you even like the worst like cut of beef is still beef. Is that the kind of thing that we're going for? What is the meaning of this? I was hoping you all would tell me. It does show that she's a bit more like out of touch socially with. I guess the working class of side three, but she has this aristocratic air about her. She works closely with Gearin. I bet, you know, Gearin's receptions. um, He has a lot of caviar. It's probably not bad. Maybe, maybe in that, in that, uh, that Saturday morning ass cartoon castle that they, 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 they introduce us to in origin. And then obviously we then see later in first Gundam. I always think about that place. I always think that Giren's a gamer. Giren is a gamer, 100%. He's yeah. like playing oh, Go yeah. in Origin on the Saturday. I think about that at least once a week. Yeah, definitely. And with that, the Komusai decouples from the Jotunheim, re-entering Earth's atmosphere. I used to admire him, Monique says, as the titanium hull of their ship heats up. Despite his appearance, he used to be a great instructor in the tank training unit. However, he failed the mobile suit pilot aptitude test. He was shocked to see rookie tank operators becoming mobile suit pilots one after another. He gave in to desperation in the end. Oliver understands. 
Weapon development consists of a succession of failures, he says. I think this is the only time I've like related to Monique a bit. Like this, the writing here captures something I think human. Um, she's clammed up most of the episode. She doesn't choose to reveal her relationship to Ademazir. But once the Komusai is dropped into the atmosphere, she opens up. She spills the beans. Like maybe it's the proximity to death as their ship is enveloped in heat. But she is vulnerable at this moment, and I think I've experienced this before. Like I feel like people are more likely to open up in situations that have a perceived proximity with death, like having deep conversations on an airplane, maybe in line for a roller coaster, uh, before a major surgery. Um, I feel like I get similar vibes from this scene. Yeah, this this definitely has a a moment of, uh, you know, she's encountering some kind of stress and she's choosing just to unload on Oliver, who, of course, you know, lacks the ability to stop this at all, uh, probably both professionally and personally. I like Oliver's line, too. Um, quote, weapon development consists of a succession of failures, end quote. Like, obviously, he's not referring to weapons. He's referring to the 603. He's also referring to his own sense of self-worth. self-worth. Um, even though they're forgotten by the high command, like, they're still human beings with remarkable qualities all their own. I will say, Igloo doesn't do much with this. And the, and the fact the fact that there's no ideological angle here, like, the writing really doesn't have them grappling with their complicity um, dampens things a bit um, but also like I said earlier it's not straight propaganda so um, there's that I have a question so this discussion the fact that we we learned this information here I, I had initially written this note in earlier when it might have flowed more naturally conversationally but like this is the conversation that prompts this knowledge in my brain which is uh, in the previous episode uh, Hemi had like a real passion for gunning, right? Like he was, mm, he's just the last of the gunners. That's what he's all about. In this episode, I think it's tempting to draw a similar thing uh, because, you know, we learned that our boy was like a top tank instructor. He's all, been, all about them tanks. But we also learned here, crucially, that he tried to get in the mobile suit piloting. And for some reason, you know, it's not necessarily connected to, you know, whatever his illness might be or, 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 you know, whatever his personal health is. For some reason, he was passed over. He did not successfully graduate into being a mobile suit pilot. In contrast, we learned to many of his, uh, his students who did pass into being uh, mobile suit pilots. And so it got me wondering, like, how much of Demazir is driven by, like, jealousy? Like, is it really about a love for time? And I think this might also go to Steven's point about maybe this episode is a little more compelling than the previous one, because I think uh, Demazir grasping for the tank as like a, a way to prove his worth more so out of like jealousy necessarily than proving any like inherent value to tanks. Um, you know, I think it makes it a more, more, com- you know, uh, a compelling character moment. The, uh, there is a, there's a thing later where so so the uh, the the Hidolfer can transform and then it can grow arms. It can be just a you know it is a mobile suit from the top up, and he seems to operate those just fine. There's a part of me that wonders if he just never could get the hang of legs. Um, like uh, maybe there's there's some echo of the uh, the Zeong uh, uh, designers. I was just who thinking are, that. Mm-hmm. Where, the meme uh, the meme part of my brain is at work right yeah. now. Yeah, uh, but I also this actually really strikes me is that so far igloo has not been about 
you know, they're they're a weapons testing team, but they're the weapons testing team that is testing the next generation of the last generation of weapons. They are not developing what is actually the future. They're and so you know, who cares about the next cannon? We aren't we aren't doing cannon warfare anymore. Who cares about the next tank? We're not doing tank warfare anymore. They're they're developing the next tank when we have drones, you know. And I think it's really really interesting that while they feel like they're pushing forward for something, what they actually are is the last branches on an evolutionary tree that is dying out. Yeah. I'm curious if that's that thread's going to continue with episode three. Maybe like be like the old guy in first Gundam still piling the Zaku one. We get some Zaku ones in this episode too. We get a Zaku one in this episode. Shout out to, um, I'm not a Zaku one hater. I'm just, I prefer the Zaku two. I feel like I've been labeled as a Zaku one hater. I like the <laughs> Zaku one, but I, Zaku two, uh, uh, like chef's kiss perfected the design. Uh, the Zaku ones that get, uh, converted for, uh, construction and have like the, uh, the like clamp arms and the, 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 the construction paint on them are one of my favorite mobile suits. Mm. I love damage max period. The, the damaged and battle worn, Zaku one, the like the desert colored Zaku one in O Eight the Mass Team owns. Meanwhile, at the sixty seventh supply point, the Zaku two units approach a patrolling Zaku one. One of the pilots asks if he has any spare ammo for his machine gun. Ask the administrative division for ammo, the Zaku one pilot says. Just then, he spots the Komusai descending, but it's taking fire. Before he can respond or alert the base. The Zaku-2 pilot, who, turns out, is a Federation soldier in disguise, opens fire, killing him. So, David, you alluded to this earlier. The portrayal of the Federation pilots here has engendered some commentary from fans. I feel from by those fans who are particularly down on Igloo. Um, I, I have seen some people argue that the portrayal of these Federation soldiers is propagandistic, especially compared to the more sympathetic way the show frames the 603. Um, I get why you land that way, especially visually. I just feel like they're opportunistic assholes, which war kind of turns everyone into. Like, they're no different than the Zeon Grunts featured in Time Be Still, um, the Tomino penned episode of First Gundam. Yeah, I don't know. He's the most evil man that ever existed. He's covered with scars. He's got a he's got an eye patch because he's an he's an actual pirate pirate uh, who steals mobile suits. Um, he's a real wild character. I didn't realize uh, PMC that we, uh, as your note points out, he never actually does get named. No, we don't get a name for this guy. I wanted I I, I don't know. Like I as soon as I got introduced to this guy and what his shtick was. Um, like this, this relates to my excitement as well for like what went wrong with the Xeon invasion of the Earth. Uh, guys like this are like so exciting to me. Like this is like yeah, we stole their shit and then we started running out their supply lines. And guess what? They couldn't cover them. <laughs> and that's There's, just like so exciting. There, uh, you know, uh, how the show portrays these Federation uh, folks aside, there are some interesting parallels between this and the modern war in Ukraine in that mm. the Russians fundamentally cannot keep, you know, they were having a very hard time keeping their supplies, the, the, their supply lines going, and that the Ukrainians, uh, there was a point uh, at which I believe, I, I read like a, a, a an article online that said that Russia was actually the number one supplier of arms to the Ukrainian military because of how many tanks and munitions 
uh, the Ukrainian army had been seizing uh, uh, after, you know, like driving, uh, uh, forcing a, a retreat or something. They would just sweep in, take all the tanks and, and uh, uh, trucks and then co- uh, uh, go back home. So there's there's a quality to that here where it's like, yeah, the Z, you know, uh, if you know from the Battle of Loom, you see the 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 the, the Zaku's fly in. War is forever changed. You know, my God, whoever has the the, the Zaku the Zaku's, they they have to win. And we're at a point where GMs have not been mass produced yet. Uh, where uh, you know, there's a Gundam and a gun tank and a gun cannon somewhere out there, but they are not on the front lines. But you can still, you know, a, a, a Zaku is just a machine. It's not, it's not loyal to anybody, and you can just take those machines and use them uh, uh, against your enemies, which I think is really, really interesting, especially from uh, this perspective. And I will say that as much as this guy is presented as a as a uh, villainous in various ways that we've already talked about, he does know all of his soldiers names he knows his squad's names he calls them out at various points and he is he doesn't do any like in a different sort of show like the evil commander character i mean char as would throw their soldiers under the bus and not really give a damn you know They're like oh are you falling into the atmosphere mm, your sacrifice will be remembered that's what char as does but our Federation commander here in the Zaku is like giving solid team advice. Like he's giving advice that the whole team can follow to success. Now, obviously the, you know, our, our, our tank commander is sort of the hero of the episode and is being very effective in an unexpected way, but you know, the keep moving, take to the air, you know, surround them. Like this isn't, no one is being used as bait. No one is being discarded or thrown away here. Like the Zeon soldiers are by their superiors. This guy, this guy's like a gamer. The way he um, is using his squad. Um, if there is a version of Zionic Front, like a Federation version of Zionic Front, he has mastered that game. He's just picking off all these suckers and all these bases. I think the issue too with my perception is that I might be rooting. And PMC, you have a note here, but I'm like I'm rooting for the <laughs> the Federation uh, soldier here. I, I would say that I'm, if they wanted to go down the propaganda route, um, because I know, because I agree with David, like he clearly, like he's visually coded as a villain, um, which definitely stands out. Shooting some kids or something, or like attacking a civilian, that would put it over the edge. But the, sim- the simple fact that he's going from base to base, I think, um, that doesn't it doesn't go in that yeah, direction. No, he's just he's just running up on their their supply lines, which is just an ordinary sort of warfare. You know, it's not. I I was flipping through F ninety one this morning looking for bicycles. And I saw the scene where, uh, you know, where the Federation commander is like, hey, if we use the kids as human shields, they won't fire on us. Um, they're, they're not doing this here. That's, you know, they, they're not the Federation commander from F-91. I have an important update, which is apparently this guy does have a name and his name is Federico Zariano. Oh, that's incredible. He's the it's best. a Gundam ass name. He's my hero now. I was going to say, I bet he's named in the novelization or other supplementary material. Because so there's that manga too, but this dude doesn't show up in the manga. It's all 603 stuff. I guess maybe it does, but I think it does partly adapt the first two episodes. So maybe he does show up in the manga. Oh, look at how handsome he is too. Here's a picture from oh. the SDG generation. Like, look at that guy. He's got that strong chin, a uh, uh, characterful scar. Like, this guy, he's a real hero. Look at that sick ass skeleton uh, uh, emblem on the side of his helmet. 
Yeah, that's really good. That this this is a this is a styling man. The yeah, uh, he's got that Kirk Douglas chin. Mm. Yeah, that's just good. I don't know. This is this guy's a winner. Win, winners forever. Speaking of those Federation soldiers, the disguised Federation soldiers managed to hit the Komusai stablers, which causes quite a bit of turbulence for our protagonists. Furthermore, their communications are down. They can't contact the Jotunheim or the supply base. Demazir chimes in and says the supply base might be a non-starter. I'm pointing out that it's compromised. He urges them to lighten the load on the Komusai by dropping him and the Hadolfer, which they do. Landing, no worse for wear. Demazir wastes no time. Operating the Hadolfer, he swiftly navigates the desert terrain of the battlefield. Using the tank's observation tools, he concludes what happened at the supply base and relays this information back to the Komusai. The supply point was attacked by sneaky thieves of the Federation forces. Worse yet, they're using our Zakus. There are six captured Zakus. I think Sneaky Thieves is the Gundam equivalent of Rebel Scum. Sneaky Thieves sounds like like a really bad esports team name. <laughs> like yeah. you just you you just failed on the branding. I'm sorry. Send it send it back. Oliver urges Demazir not to engage the enemy. It's no use, he says. I'll be spotted soon. If I don't get the first attack, they'll all be on top of me. I'll start with the stationary ones. Dug into the ground, Demazir picks off the Zakus with deadly accuracy. Man, this this episode has a lot of good action. Um, this reminds me of my Halo 2 no-scope days. I wasn't like a, a standout player by any stretch of the imagination. PMC is Steven. narrowing his eyes skeptical. What are we talking about here? I was I was decent in my own right. PMC was much, the much better Halo player in our youth. PMC, do you, does this remind you of your Halo days? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, the <laughs> I feel like the it reminds me in the way that like when you like run people over in a warthog it was like very funny. Like the way the way collision even and even like to some extent uh, bullets had collision like this kind of in Halo, where you would like you would see them like move and like the shield would pop and you get that sort of knock back. Um, this is very, very satisfying physicality to it, and I, I do think they capture some of that in here. Like, I, I think if I had like one complaint about some of the action, it's that one. I, I wish that there was more of a sense of motion with some of the explosions. Like sometimes it feels like things just explode. Um, but I, I do think that with, especially with the, um, I think the bit you, the bit you, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes Stephen asked me to like, you know, pick out clips for him to use for for our meme factory. And one of the clips was the the one Zaku getting getting shot from across and falling over, and, um, and I was like, "Yeah, this is a pretty good one. This this works out well." I love that the impact of the shot has more destruct. It, it has its own destruction before the high explosive even kicks off. I remember I have a very specific memory of from my high school days where we had this. I had this physics teacher who like very much felt like he could have like been like a like a like a twilight zone government man like we we didn't know anything about him i'm not gonna say his last name his first name was wayne like very much just sort of like he he could have popped out of like just you know the 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 fbi and the thing i remember most of was the time he explained to us the difference between uh explosive shells and bullets bullets deal all their damage by kinetics whereas shells are you know often about explosives a payload as well and that is, you know, something I definitely think about. Like, ah, yes, 
It is about the kinetic damage, the force of the impact. Imanishi is really good with those like sick detail like the the authenticity of military tech he's a military sicko and it doesn't always work to his advantage but he has an eye for detail when it comes to stuff like that even though it doesn't always age well with the cg the federation pilots taking cover from tank fire decide on three points that are suitable for an ambush all right the federation commander david federico federico zarito azariano federico Zariano says, Marion and Mitchell's Type 61, go ahead and circle around. Addressing the remaining Zaku pilots, he says, the mobile suits will divide into two groups and charge. Now the plan is set. The Federation squad begins their counteroffensive. Here they come. Demazir acknowledges. Demazir then falls back to a second trench where he digs in again. The Federation pilots, in response, charge his position. Demazir, even though he's lost communication with the Komusai, is undeterred. He fires a heat round, conflagrating the area around the Zakus, spiking the temperatures to 1,200 degrees Celsius. It's just a napalm bomb, Federico exclaims. <laughs> just, a, just a napalm bomb. Um, don't stop. Demazir manages to take one out with this tactic. I, uh, in our notes, this is where I uh, put the... Uh the note about uh, the shells and Sonnen's pills. Um, I do also think there's something really cool about the way that uh, the Zaku, the, 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 a, a Zaku, how do I want to say this? De, uh, Demazir in his tank is a full strategic uh, operation. You know, he's planning his attacks. He picks off the, the targets one by one. He can adjust his uh, uh, armaments to uh, uh, fit his patterns there's a real, there's a real quality to him that's uh, where he is. Maybe that's what it is. Is that uh, in this show, which is so much about technology and so much about uh, trying to develop the next good gun, the actual, the actual thing you you need in a war are experienced soldiers who can think strategically and who can innovate on the battlefield, uh, and so. Here, maybe this, you know, this tank isn't going to be used in the future. I don't know why, because it's a great tank. Uh, but uh, this tank is not going to be used. But the actual bigger loss is this uh, uh, soldier who can take out an entire platoon because he can think, uh, 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 he thinks on his feet faster and better than any rank and file soldier. Again, like the prioritization of technology over the value of a hu- uh, uh, human experience. Yeah, this comes up a lot in in BattleTech novels where the the people who win are like the people who are like, "Oh, I'm in this like I happen to be in this situation where I could just like murder a ton of battle mechs if I do this." Whoopsies, you know, and it's the same kind of thing where it's like, "Can you work through the the ser- I mean, and, and there's a sort of um I mean, and unsurprisingly for for BattleTech, certainly there's a game like quality to making all those dominoes fall in the order that you want them to fall, uh, and I think that that is likewise uh, the case here. Also, the fact that it's like a napalm bomb, I'm just thinking of like, I feel like Demazir Sonnen and Federico Zariano would both be uh, like very good at like hot ones at like wing eating. They would definitely relish the hot wings. Well, he's got the mints uh, uh, for that aftertaste. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. Yeah. To avoid any more napalm bombs, the three remaining Zakus blast into the air to surround the Hidolfer. Not about to let himself be encircled, Demazir takes advantage of his tank's superior ground-based agility. However, one of the Zakus manages to land a direct hit on the tank's treads, slowing it to a halt. I'm going to close in and finish him off, one of the Zaku pilots, armed with a bazooka, says. Um, to buy himself time... Oh. Could, uh, 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 was it just me, or was the Hidolfer in these scenes significantly smaller than it is later on in the show? Because I feel like when it is uh, zooting around the, uh, the Zaku's feet... It is about the size of the foot of a Zaku. And then later, it has arms that can pick up uh, 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 one of the uh, the Zaku's guns. The scaling now that you mention it, yeah. feels off. Like, especially when it's doing that that bit where it keeps doing the fronties, backsies. Like, it feels very small then. Like, it feels comparable to a Type 61. And then later on, it's like, no, nah, this is mobile armor now, baby. To buy himself time and give himself necessary cover... Demazir launches a smokescreen. This temporary obfuscation allows him to transform the Hidolfer into its mobile mode, effectively making it a mech. Utilizing his machine gun, Demazir proceeds to make quick work of his enemies. Man, the Hidolfer is such a sick design. Uh, Kotoki really knocked this one out of the park. Um, going into this episode, I had no idea it transformed into a more traditional mech. When I did my history notes, I remember Izabuki um, structured these first three episodes um, very succinctly. Episode one deals with the space laser and spaceships. Episode two is going to deal with tanks. And episode three is going to deal with mobile suits. So I thought this episode was just all going to be tanks and like weird-ass tank designs. And this is a weird-ass tank design, but it's also like a cool-ass mech. Like something about this design, I think it's the face with its more angular features, reminds me of the Metal Gear Ray. And once I had that in my head, I naturally compared the Hadolfer to the Shagohod. And the Shagohod is fucking huge. It's not as mobile, obviously, as this. Um, but still a fun comparison to make. Um, I was out for a run today. And I saw a Swiss Army knife. I'm, ma- I'm not making this up either. This legitimately happened. I was on a run, um, saw a Swiss Army knife, and immediately thought of the Hadolfer. Um, because both of them have so many hidden capabilities. Um, it's such a versatile piece of tech on the battlefield. Like... I don't know. Hey, Xeon High Command, I'm sure these things are pricey to produce and I'm sure not easy to mass produce, but I would put some of these suckers in the battlefield. We can do the Metal Gear Solid 2 uh, uh, Marine Commander speech, except it's about the Hildolfer instead of the Ray. Mm. <laughs> That's good. It's, uh, I feel like the face uh, maybe has a little uh, a big row in it, um, which, uh, 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 no, uh, uh, no spoilers for... Uh, MS Igloo, but uh, Big Row will come back in a big way in, I think, the second season. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it's something about that mo- that uh, that pointy-snooted mono-eye uh, is really good. This is such an armored core design, too. Like, it's, Gundam yeah. mm. does not think about mobile suits in the same way that, like, other mech things think of, you know, this is not a robot for a function. It has arms and legs because we have, our mobile suits have arms, arms and legs. Again, like, this is this is the thing where it's <laughs> this is fundamentally the better design for ground combat. It's got treads, so it's fast. It's got, it can uh, carry a lot more weaponry. Like this is a, uh, uh, like I said, this is the this is the 
Gundam being its own nerd and holding up its finger going, mm, actually, if you just put treads on it, it could go quite faster on uh, uh, on the rocky terrain of Arizona's, uh, uh, fi- what is it, uh, fiery battlefields? Oh, fi- fiery wastes, was it? Was it? No, I think waste was me. That was Steven oh, was here. You? Uh, scorching, uh, uh, under the scorching sun and its battlefield of fiery sands. Which, hang on. Does Arizona really have a sandy desert? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that, that, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like when I think of Arizona, it's it's more, you know, uh, uh, sun-caked, form, uh, uh, you know, like like kind of alkali flats, but maybe that's... Mm. That name, the... Oh, wait, wait, I don't know. I have to, do, I have to make this comparison. The Scorching Sun, the Battlefield of Fiery Sands, like sounds like the name of a Persona Five track, like a piece of music. I was gonna say it sounds like a stage in like a Fire Emblem game. That mm. too, yeah. <coughs> I feel like so. I think we we remarked, especially in the Giant Robot FM coverage, about the relationship between Igloo and Origin, uh, just because of shared personnel, of how they tend to be minded, etc. I feel like there's a really funny history in here somewhere. Um, so, you know, there's another vehicle. There's another vehicle with arms and treads in, in Gundam, the gun tank. Now, you're obviously you're looking at the at the lore. Zeon probably doesn't know about gun tank at this point because I think, what, first Gundam pops out around, like, what, seven, eight months into the one-year war, and we're, like, six months here. So September I don't, or October, I think. Yeah, I don't think there's a... I'm not necessarily worried about a lore connection. Uh, but like, I definitely feel like there could be some sort of uh, relationship here, you know, that you could just ponder upon. And certainly if you decided to project Igloo into the origin version of things, that gets even funnier because at that point, the gun tank is like an established institution, uh, as we learn, because, you know, you see the early gun tanks in like the prequel material in origin, uh, and that gets even kind of funnier. Yeah, the, some of those... Uh, Origin has a lot of sick designs. Like, say what you will about the uh, anime adaptation. I know some people are cooler on the, the manga itself, but by just looking at the mechanical designs, some of those really sing. As the battle reaches its final stage, a scrapped Zaku unit gets stuck in the Hadolfer's treads, immobilizing it. Demazir is able to use the recoil of a powerful artillery blast to reorient the tank and get it back to moving. I was just getting excited reading that. I I love mechanical details like that. Yeah, this um, <coughs> pardon me. Uh, this uh, sequence, uh, I couldn't help but think of uh, using the tank's cannon as a movement tool. Uh, uh, did you ever see the A Team reboot from Jesus? When was that? Uh, that was somewhere in the two thousand. It had Liam Neeson and Bradley Cooper in it. Bradley it's- Cooper. Isn't John Hammond a too? Probably, I don't know. It's an utterly forgettable film, except for the part where they fly a tank. Uh, they're in a, they're they're in a uh, an airplane. The airplane gets shot down. Everybody jumps into a tank, uh, uh, and then they use the cannon to uh, move the tank, and while simultaneously shooting at drones and also slowing their descent. Uh, it's a great scene, uh, and I don't know the conception of uh, kinetic weapon as both. Uh, you know, this thing is set is essentially a rocket that I'm also uh, uh, that I'm just using in reverse. That's that's a pretty neat idea. It is uh, it is a common bit of speedrun technology in some open world games 
to, uh, if possible, if you can independently aim the tank with respect to the direction that the vehicle is traveling, uh, to just put it behind you and start just firing that sucker. Uh, it works in Grand Theft Auto Vice City is to use the speedrun technology. Uh, also, it's just cause three it is used. Um, and I'm sure there are probably other games. And I, and I would differentiate this too from, because the idea of like explosion boosting, you know, like rocket jumping, like that is also, of course, a thing. But like this is like specifically, you're in a tank. You're not even damaging yourself to do this. You are just, you know, pointing it behind you and using it to, you know, to gain acceleration. Yes. Well, while watching that, like I mentioned this earlier, I feel like PMC was speed running a video game. <laughs> the fight scenes have that quality. And that's not a criticism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like when that tank was just <laughs> like hopped up on who knows what. Mints. Um, very um, mints. Yeah. Um, just like speeding around the desert. I was like, what the fuck's going on here? And also like Armored Core. I mean, some of the stuff that you can do with treads in Armored Core 6, honestly, does, that feels like it calls back to this almost. You're speed running that this week, right, PMC? That's the plan. I'm going to be um, trying to get into learning that uh, and maybe submitting it. There's a thing There's a thing in GDQ where sometimes they'll do a second submission period for newer releases. Um, and so games like Armored Core 6, Baldur's Gate 3, Super Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers Wonder... Uh, you know, 2023 has been a busy year for games, and you know I think uh, to within reason they want to get you know good submissions of more recent games in, and so yeah, that's uh, I'll be I'll be I've already been doing that off stream, and I'll be streaming some of that later. Very cool. As the stress of combat begins to weigh on him, Demazir loses his edge. The siren song of his drugs tempt him, just as the Federation commander. Federico engages him in hand-to-hand combat. Taking advantage of Demazir's distracted state of mind, he fires his machine gun into the cockpit at point-blank range, presumably killing him. Federico then proceeds in the direction of the Komusai, which is not equipped with any anti-mobile suit defenses. Before his hobbling Zaku-2 can finish the job, it explodes after being hit with an artillery blast. As the smoldering chamber of the Hidolfer's barrel indicates, the mortally injured Demazir was able to fire one more shot. Hidolfer, he rasps, throwing his pills away. I can still fight. So not to take away from the emotional weight of this scene, but all I could think about is... I've got one round, the rocks line from Doom, the 2005 film adaptation. Um, PMC, I think we have audio of it. Are you going to shoot me? Yeah, I was thinking about it. What you got left? Half a clue, you. I've got one round. PMC, that we saw this movie together. Yes, we did see this movie together. I've been thinking about this movie a lot recently because um, the the lead actress is the lead actress of the Wheel of Time adaptation. I, what's her name? I, um, Gone Girl. I have shit. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Moraine. No, she's the one who plays Moraine. Um, Rosamund Pike. Yes, Rosamund Pike. She's in. I'm pretty. She's in Doom, isn't she? Along with yeah. The Rock and, uh, um, Kurt Carl Urban. Carl Urban. Uh, what a film. Yeah. I wonder. Doug Jones is in it too. Yes. Um, my favorite it, thing about Doom, yeah. uh, uh, the movie Doom, is the character with the single highest body count is uh, their set of security doors. Um, <laughs> more people get bisected by those doors than anything else in that entire movie. It's wild. <laughs> it's really good. Our experience specifically was that we went to like a three-day land party in the mid-2000s, as you do. And then in the middle of that, as a break from, you know, the, the round the clock gaming, we went to a movie theater and saw that and then came back. Um, and it was actually probably the perfect, the perfect way to view that film. I can't remember. I'm surprised how much I remember from that film nearly 20 years later. I have not seen it since, but there are moments of that film that I still remember. Obviously the first person scene is mm-hmm. probably the most memorable. Yes, of course. I always think of, of the rock saying this wasn't supposed to happen to me. That's a good one. So, I mean, the writing of Igloo is on the nose, but I feel like the parallelism here is clever. Like, by throwing his pills away, Demazir announces that he no longer seeks validation from others. His worth comes from within. He's no longer chained to how he's viewed by his superiors. He's free. So he's free in that regard. He's also free from his mints. And free from living, too, because he breathes his last here. Not to put too fine a point on it. Processing his comrade's sacrifice as the light from a setting sun fills the cockpit, Oliver concludes that even a bad soldier isn't worse than a stray dog. Holding back something, tears maybe? Monique says, if you die, you're even worse than a stray. I don't know if I have any conclusion from this. I, <laughs> I, obviously, I guess Monique is expressing sadness over uh, Demazir's passing. Uh, that you know he didn't come back. Um, but that doesn't really like. I don't know, Monique. Tell me what. Tell me what you really think. I don't know. <laughs> like, I think that a, that a dead dog is worse than a stray dog. Like on the, on, if you're just balancing things. Um, <sighs> yeah, it's Full Metal Alchemist. I have both scales out. Dead dog, stray dog. We're all pondering the line here. Mm-hmm. Bad caviar is bad caviar. Yeah, I'm still th- worried about that caviar. Is that going to come <laughs> back up later? Am I going to spend time in the bathroom well, <laughs> dealing with that bad caviar? And I mean, here's yeah, igloo episode again, going nine. to the. What did we learn here? I guess not to do it again. Like there's there, you know, we we have come to the end of a pointless ex- exercise. Uh, those Federation soldiers were not going to win the war. This tank was not going to win the war. This guy was not going to last very much longer, even if he was kept out of uh, 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 kept out of the fight to begin with. It's just, but you know, maybe, maybe improving himself, there is some dignity uh, that he can yet uh, uh, yet handle. But that's about as far as you can go with this story. It's a very down ending. Yeah, when it. Co- when it comes to tanking, you just have to trust the process. There you go. The episode ends with Oliver's now routine evaluation report. Experimental mobile tank, Hildolfer. Technical evaluation report. On the 5th of May, the 603 Technical Evaluation Unit conducted live fire evaluations of the Hildolfer. 
at which time we encountered enemy troops equipped with stolen MS-06J mobile battlesuits. During this battle, the test pilot, Major Demisio Sonnen, fought valiantly and with great skill. He defeated all of the stolen mobile battlesuits using cunning tactics and the Hildolfo's powerful weaponry. Major Sonnen ultimately completed the test mission, but was lost in battle. Even though the experimental weapon was destroyed in combat, we gained a tremendous amount of valuable data. We believe this will ultimately reverse the previous negative evaluation of the Hildolfo. Universal Sentry, 0079, 11th of May. Oliver May, Engineering Lieutenant. All right, David. Please, can you tell us? Can you tell us the real moral of the story right, now? So this is the end of the episode, but this is not the end <laughs> of the Hidolfer, Uh because uh, years later, uh, in the uh, PS4 slash PS5 game uh, Code Fairy, uh, this basically the exact opposite of MS Igloo happens. So if you're unfamiliar with with uh, uh, Co- Code Fairy, it's about the noisy fairy squad, which is about a bunch of attractive young teen girls who are in this, uh, 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 who are an elite squadron of Xeon uh, fighters who manage to win every com- uh, uh, combat scenario they're in. They have the coolest mobile suits always sent to them. And at one point, uh, uh, after they have successfully established a base on Earth, uh, when actually when their supply supplies start running out, they're encouraged to uh, scavenge for uh, additional supplies. And one of them goes, hey, well, there was that one tank. There was that one tank out there in the Arizona desert. What if we just go- took its cannon? And so in the game, you go out and, re- and uh, not only uh, uh, salvage the cannon from the Hidolfer, but the characters find the body of Demizir Sonnen and give him a proper burial. There was a burial scene. You see his casket. What? Uh, uh, they put flowers on it. And uh, uh, then uh, the cannon is... Are you shitting what? me here, David? No, this is... This Are you is shitting me hang here? On, hang on, Let me... Um, let me let me show you the picture of uh, uh, Demazir's uh, funeral. Um, bum, 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 bum. Here we go. Um, see full-size image. Copy. Paste into chat. Uh, you can see his hat, uh, his bloody hat on top, uh, RIP to a real one. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and so then the cannon is then incorporated into, uh, the Dom Nomades, uh, which is a super cool, uh, Dom that has a, uh, has a Gallop class slapped on its back, and it's a big, cool, world, uh, 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 mobile weapons platform. The thing is, this is insane. Um, it's, again, like, you just... <laughs> This whole thing exists to tell the futility of war and how one man is, it means nothing in the, in the scope of these things. Maybe only the small personal victories are there. And then this group of hot young teens come waltzing in, <laughs> pick him up and go, you are a good soldier and you deserve the uh, 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 an honorable burial. And they take his cannon and they're like, well, the problem with this is that it was stuck on a dumb tank. We just need to put this on a cool dom. And then they do. And then they win. <laughs> specific like uh, uh, uh no the in the course of code fairy none of the characters who again are hot young teen girls they're they range in a hit you know like 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 uh 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 here if you um uh you, you gotta you gotta look up just like the cover art which is uh 
you know, these smiling, happy, uh, 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 happy anime girls playing in a field with a Zaku, uh, uh, behind them. Um, like <laughs> that's probably where Demizera is buried yeah, yeah. right under uh, them. This is literally the opposite of MS Igloo. Igloo is about these miserable, horrible hum- potato homunculi who have no point in life, fighting a <laughs> uh, fighting a losing cause in a uh, in a pointless war. And this is about well, yeah, but what if the teens? What if the teen? What if the Hitler Youth got a chance? Boy, I bet that they could do something really fun. It's insane. So when we say when we, I wish when we say, I was. When we say, ahead, is MS Igloo Zeon propaganda? No! This is Zeon propaganda! <laughs> I wish there was like a Treehouse of Horrors version of this where they rendered the Code Fairy characters using Igloo CGI. That's what it would be good. I wish we had that. That would be good. <laughs> PMC, we need to clip that for the, the scene from Code Fairy and just like put taps over it and just like put uh Demazier's uh date of birth and death i need i need you to understand that i am like one of the moderators for like gundam speedrunning and when this game was coming out it was like the first single player focused gundam game in a while and i really thought about playing it a bunch of times but every time i looked at the cover i said no I can't fucking play this game. <laughs> I can't. And like, to some extent, I'm glad I didn't so that I could have the revelatory experience that I had tonight. <laughs> yeah. My co-host, because I, um, they were at the last minute ads made to the notes and they said, don't scroll down. Yeah, Don't and scroll down. <laughs> I had no idea what to expect. I'll tell you this. I did not expect this. No. Ah, <laughs> I, do people know this? I feel like, we got to get the word out. I, well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know if they would, like, it's such a weird combination, too, because I imagine other people like us probably had the same reaction to Code Fairy. I feel like the only people who probably got into Code Fairy were probably Battle Operation 2 enjoyers because the game, I believe, is similar to Battle Operation 2. So that's already a niche of a niche. And, you know, and oh, as we've established, Igloo also, you know, has its detractors, is also something of a niche itself. So that's probably a, diff- a difficult uh you know venn diagram a difficult difficult area to thread i don't know i don't know if people know this yeah it's uh uh the other the other uh this is this is a this is slightly less egregious uh there is uh uh uh, imanishi could not leave things alone (laughs) and so uh he later published a uh follow-up manga to 0083 called 0083 rebellion that does at one point feature the Hidolfer Kai, which is uh, honestly a sick-ass mobile suit. Uh, here's a, I believe this is a model kit. Uh, you will notice that it can actually transform and grow oh. super cool legs with 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 treads on them. Oh, uh, neat! Again, solving yeah. the problem of your tank, just make it a mobile suit, and that that, that fixes everything. Yeah. Honestly, that, that kind of the legs kind of remind me of the. Um, sorry, again, I just flipped through F ninety one this morning. In F ninety one, there's like a ten year old transformable tank that features in the opening sequence, and it it, it its legs transform just like that. Um, but if you uh uh, got, uh 0083 Rebellion also features uh some characters from uh uh, uh igloo uh popping up, so it's uh. Might be worth you guys taking a peek once you get to the end of uh, 
uh, apoc- yeah. uh, uh, the second se- season. Yeah, I've heard interesting things about that manga. If, for the listeners who don't know, Imanishi was allegedly fired from... I thought he was fired from Sunrise because he allegedly showed up drunk to the premiere of Gundam The Origin 3, and that really upset people. So he was no longer co-director of Origin after that, and, but he still managed to squirm his way back into um, doing a 0083 manga for Gundam Ace. I say allegedly, because none of this has been proven, but it's like whispered down the, you know, whispered down the lane. And that's all I have. David, give us some of my closing thoughts about Igloo. I think if you watch, I think if you, do you need to watch Igloo? No, you don't. If you want to watch Igloo, is this the episode to watch? No, I would watch uh, uh, the end of the first episode from the, uh, uh, there has never been a a fleet battle in space before, uh, from that title card to the end. That's what you should watch. That's 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 the entire series in one uh, uh, sustained action sequence. It's great. You're done with your uh, done. You can go on with your life and uh, uh, be like, I've seen all of Igloo, and you pretty much have. But if you want to watch two episodes of MS Igloo, this is the second one to watch. Um, I don't know. I think I admire this episode for its ambition. It is trying to tell. It is trying to tell a mature uh, uh, war story. It is trying to have flawed characters. It's trying to explore aspects of the one-year war that uh, wouldn't be explored otherwise. And that's valuable, cool. I think on... Like, Igloo... Igloo lives happier as memory than in the moment. I think that that thinking about Igloo is more fun than watching Igloo. As... As often is the case with Gundam. Let's not get <laughs> there. There, there are lots of gu- Gundam Wing. Gundam Wing famously is a is a yeah. You're subtweeting yeah, yeah, Gundam famously Wing a show that is more fun to talk about than to watch. Um. So. Uh. But I think, and there are other there are other aspects of Gundam that uh that 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 tap into this. That photo book uh, uh is one. The uh what is it, the the model kit series? The hard. Oh, hard graph. You see hard graph. Yes, that was DID. Uh, yeah, D- DID like headed that yeah, up. Yeah, I think. Excuse me. Any given UC hard graph uh, uh, model kit, especially the one with the big with the uh, people to scale with the uh, destroyed Zaku head, is actually probably better than than one of these episodes uh, in terms of delivering the narrative. But I'm glad this exists. I'm glad that there is this weird view into the one year war uh, that. Unlike other, th- uh, unlike Code Fairy, unlike every you know, every Gundam uh, uh, side story wants to somehow push its characters into the forefront and say, actually, the secret of the One Year War is that this dude over here did something incredible, and it could not. And there were five other variations of a Zaku and a Dom and a Camphor, and they all were uh, flying around seven years before the original one came out, and it was all really super cool, and you just never heard about it. This is not that. This says there was a crew that got shit assignments and they didn't do much. And at the end of the war, they were very sad. <laughs> and I think that it's very good that this that that exists. 
Yeah, now that we're two episodes in, I was really expecting to be down on Igloo, and I'm pleasantly surprised that I'm not. I'm just like, it's not that bad. And so, actually, in some respects and in some aspects, it's actually better than not bad. It's fine. Igloo, I, I think, um, Igloo has high ambitions, and even if it very rarely meets those ambitions, that it has those ambitions is laudable. Yeah. It's got real Pizza Hut energy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Look at PMC bringing back the Pizza Hut discourse. <laughs> Sorry. And we're not even talking There's about something about else. the lighting. I feel like I'm in an old Pizza Hut, you know? Sorry, I'm my I'm my mind wandering. Steven Hero. Yeah. Instantly I love me teleported. some sit down. Yeah, Pizza Hut's just give me like a sit down Pizza Hut right next to a Quiznos and I don't need to move ever. All right, David, where can the good people find you? In this fragmented, Death Stranding-esque environment that is social media now, I feel like I see you less online, and that makes it's me sad. One but day, valid. when they add DMs to Blue Sky, you will see me constantly. Uh, uh, then the uh, the migration will finally be complete. And uh, uh, because that that is the truth. I used to I would used to uh, uh, direct people to my Twitter. I no longer. Uh, uh, I am functionally off the site, uh, save for our uh group dm and even then uh i've gotten so far behind on uh turn a that uh i am ashamed uh every time i see it uh i will i will catch up and i will be friends uh again uh you can find me on blue sky uh at shoebill.moe uh that's uh that's where i am posting the most uh if you type shoebill.moe into uh into a uh browser it'll take you to my co-host uh, I don't use that co-host very often. Um, open secret, I uh, uh, also maintain a Star Wars blog at uh, cohost.com backslash BB8. I post there a lot. Uh, and then uh, I'm BB8. Oh, you're BB8? Yeah. Yeah. Didn't when when they, uh, 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 I've, I've, I've gotten some, some AMCA shout outs. Uh, that was going to say, yeah. that's how I know you. Like, wow, man. <laughs> we're dealing with a celebrity um, here, PMC. As uh, uh, and actually, because of uh, uh, because of that, um, I there my artwork is actually uh, uh, usually uh, I'm just uh, half contented doing my day job, which is a, as a game designer for uh, 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 a video game company. But um, uh, every once in a while, uh, I get roused out to do some artwork for various projects. Uh, so if you are looking for a great Star Wars role playing game, I did the cover art. For uh, Jess Levine's amazing Going Rogue 2E, uh, which you can fa- find on itch.io. Uh, I also did the cover art for the Scum and Villains uh, uh, supplement. Uh, I just recently did co- uh, cover art for uh, Rowan Kaiser's uh, podcast, uh, Total Massacre, uh, which recently re- uh, relaunched. Um, so that podcast has uh, uh, some cover art by me, and uh, it has a uh, friend. Uh, 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 Secret Mecha uh, uh, chat friends, uh, uh, friend uh, Kev Kozer as a co-host. Um, is there anywhere else that I've? I think those are the the uh, the big projects that I've uh, done recently. So, yeah, I've, I still have an online heartbeat. I've been I've been worried that that uh, I haven't been online anymore, but I think I think it's 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 still there. Yeah, it's it's better for and your mental health. If I wasn't so sickly online, I'd be a happier person. But then someone um, 
retweet something of mine, I'm like, ah, there's the, the mint. There's the adrenaline rush. All right, PMC, where can people find us? Yeah, so Giant Robot FM is at this point uh, still active on Twitter and Blue Sky. Those are probably the major places to find our posts as well as the posts of the daily Mecca account that uh, you know Stephen operates. Uh, of course, you know the podcast feed is always a good place. You can find that wherever you listen to podcasts. You know there are fewer of those nowadays as well. Uh, if you want to help us out, you can rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform that is uh, a lot of people have done that the past few months very very appreciative of that helps us a lot we are independent we don't network at all really we're just kind of out there shooting posts firing from the hip firing our cannon shells um if you want to help us out in other ways uh we do have a patreon patreon.com slash giant robot fm there's a few patron exclusive things going on there there's a patron exclusive discord there is a bonus podcast feed uh, that covers our turn a Gundam watch called Moonrace Wireless. The first four episodes of Moonrace Wireless are on the main feed, so you can check those out. If you like them, go to patreon.com slash giantrobotfm, check that out. We will be doing that for the foreseeable future, unless um, something comes up that we want to do a week-to-week show again, like we did with Witch Mercury, but right now that's the plan there. We also have another bonus podcast series where we give Mecha video games the same treatment that we give to Mecha anime. That is the Simulator series. A bunch of those are also on the free main feed. Episodes on Armored Core, episodes on Front Mission, Frame Grind. Check those out. If you like them and you want to support that work, go over to patreon.com slash giantrobotfm. Check out the Simulator uh, tier. If you support that, right now you'll get episodes on Assault Suits Falcon and the Gunbuster video games. We are working on recording an episode on Front Mission Gun Hazard. That's going to be our next thing uh, that we are working on. I recently finished that game. It was a hell of a fun game, and I'm very excited to record a podcast about it. Uh, I want to give uh, credit to Dwarf S for our graphic design, credit to Shkin for our, our art, and credit to Fretzel, hashtag ban Fretzel for the music that we use. Steven, I have some instructions <laughs> for you now. I have I have updated my last will and testament, and it okay. says, Steven, that Hit when I it. die, do not let attractive anime kids disinter my corpse and then rebury me in their PS4 game. Please. Please.